Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. Well, looking across the table from me today, a familiar face. Hey, buddy. It's been a couple of months. How you been? <laughs> I don't know, you know, I've been good. You have really changed. Did you get shorter? I, I, I think not. in your in your advanced age, it's been months since I've been here. I haven't seen you in months and months and months. And I think maybe the kyphosis is setting in and you're short. Yeah, well, you say advanced age, though, as every listener knows, you're older than me. Always yeah. will be. And of course, the humor of that is Mike and I see each other. Every not, day. <laughs> not quite daily, but very close. Because we work together, obviously, outside of this EMA sphere as well. Uh, we, in fact, we shared an office for many years. Yes, many years. Like probably like 12 years or something like that. I don't know that it was that long because I haven't been at USC for 12 years, but it was, you know, many years. No, you have. You started there in 2009. I think you're making that up. No, I'm definitely not. But yeah, we shared an office for about 10 years. Something Ish, like yep. that. Mm-hmm. Long yeah, time. Had it all set up with the dual desks. Yeah. They, they, right? They'd stare at each other. <laughs> like, a, like a dueling piano yeah. situation. Yeah. We just, and sometimes we just like stare at the other one with disdain for like, I mean, like really uncomfortably long periods of time. Like I'm going to do right now. Oh, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> I'm now I'm starting to remember those days. That's right. That stare. That's why ultimately there was an HR notice that I had to change desks yeah mike was kicked office. out much like he was kicked out of ema a few months ago yeah well you were kicked out you you haven't heard last month's ema so you don't know the whole intro where we discuss you're being fired from ema etc but See, apparently you were reinstated or now unbeknownst to me or now you look like a liar <laughs> no mel went ahead and said we're desperate both Whitney and Britt said they would never do this again and so he looked on his docket he's like who do i have and the only person that was willing to do it, Sanjay Aurora. You know what, though? That's because, I hate to say this, nobody can stand you. <laughs> I don't feel like you, no. can hate to, you hate to say that. No, I feel being like in a room with you for it. three hours is difficult. Let's <laughs> say that. Thanks, buddy. Of course, it's great to... tender, fragile ego. They it, can't handle gotta, that kind of stuff. I gotta say, it's great to be back, isn't it? Doesn't it feel... If this it, feels, it feels... It feels right. It feels, it feels right. good. Yeah. You know, it's funny because after you know three years of doing this, I think we both thought we'd need a break, but I kind of missed it a little bit. <laughs> I did kind of miss it the month I didn't do it. However, it's not the doing the papers. It's not the doing the recording. It's the grind of the paper search and the note prep. And every once in a while, I just need a little break from it. Yeah. So I actually appreciated so the break, break. And I appreciated break. I think we're coming, coming back in. charged for February. February 2022. Yay. Two, two, twenty. 22. Pretty cool month. Not too bad. If this if was, you're listening on February 2nd. Oh, or 20th. Oh, snap. <laughs> My mind is blown. Right? If you're 02, 02, 2, 2, 02, 2. Deuces are wild. <laughs> wow. Got yourself a... Uh, and if you're not, I suggest you either go back in time and listen on February 2nd. Or do it on the 20th. Or wait, pause this right now, wait till the 20th. Yeah. That's a good idea. You could also wait 200 years till 2222. I, I, wow. You see that? My mind is blown. You see what I did there? <laughs> it makes the concept of cryogenically freezing your brain and coming back to life seem worth it now. Yeah, now I have a reason. Before it was like, what kind of a show is the world going to be in at that point in time? Now, 
you I've got know. something to look forward to. You just want to you want to be there for that moment, that special EMA moment. In twenty two, twenty two, gotten ridiculous fast. Well, you know what? The Normally truth is, it doesn't get this ridiculous till about hour two and a half. You know what? The truth is though, there's not a lot in February like of excitement to talk about. Super Bowl, that's a good one. Super and for Bowl's the record, one. for the record, I'm going to the Super Bowl this year. You are? Yeah. I've already decided. I've looked into tickets. Where is it? It's here. It's in LA. It's at SoFi Stadium. Ah. So the only thing that would preclude me from going to the Super Bowl is if the Rams were in the Super Bowl, because then ticket prices would be $20 billion. I see. Um, I see. There'll already be, you know, sort of $3 billion. But if the Rams were here, then it would be like a ridiculous show of like every celebrity spending, you know, I everything. See. But the Rams are sucking these days. So, it, so as of, of you going are as good. of December. Second, when we're taping, the Rams are sucking, so uh, my probability of going to the Super Bowl is very high right now. Yeah, because that's Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. I guess that's all you got. Ooh, Valentine's Day. That's a rough Yeah, one. for us, that's a little burnt. You know who loves Valentine's Day? Loves Valentine's Day. Our wives? No. <laughs> Rhea. Oh. I doubt. I mean, but if you ask her to list out her holidays, it's probably above Christmas. Yeah, well, that'll fit. She, ju- she just loves it. Like, yeah. everybody gets a specially made card yeah. and with a heart, and she really keeps track of what kind of a card she wants for every person. Eesh, that doesn't bode well for the future. Yeah, some poor Some, some poor, poor guys. <laughs> I used to get, when I was three, I used to get 32 cards from yeah. all my people. Oh. All I got from you is one oh, we necklace. Are, we already know that about Rhea. Yeah. That she's, she's really going to make somebody's life very, very, very <laughs> special. But very difficult in, in some a, point in a in her very life. difficult kind of way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hopefully, you know the big news as of December is Omicron, this this new variant, which we know nothing about. You know, sort of emerged on Thanksgiving weekend, which was just a few days ago. And I'm just really hopeful and terribly pessimistic at the same time. I'm hoping that whatever it is, it has passed by February second. But if past is prologue. Yeah. When we say this, that means that the entire country will be in a terrible maybe, lockdown. Maybe by you now. should say you hope we're in lockdown. Yeah. Because everything we seem to say we hope for it doesn't turn yeah, out. Yeah, three to be months true. later is a disaster. So But we do have a lot of COVID papers this month, actually. Probably more and you know, we've talked about this before. That's not that surprising, right? right? As we get more into this and more therapies come out. I mean, the COVID papers probably get sent to us to cover more than any other paper. I mean, I have Three, I think maybe even four COVID papers this month with one really interesting one on how the COVID pandemic affected the economics of emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. So that's not like a therapeutic one. What but do you, you do have some therapeutic ones as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I've got the, the big, the fluvoxamine trial mm-hmm. that like million people sent me to cover. What do you got? This I month? actually don't have any on COVID, which it feels a little yeah, different. I feel you usually some. cover a little more on the COVID and maybe you a little less, but somehow it got all, it got turned on its head. I have some interesting studies, one on bloody diarrhea in children, something we don't see too often in terms of like the literature. I have a couple on, well, one really good one on uh, the point of care ultrasound for arthrocentesis, which I really like. Another on septic bursitis, another little topic that we don't see too often. Couple on stroke per my usual. So I've got a, a nice. Yeah, um, I've got one on mix. alcohol withdrawal. I don't know that we've. Covered I've never one seen of those a case of really, that. really. Yeah, <laughs> sure you haven't. <laughs> You've seen one when you look in the mirror. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen one with you, but yeah, obviously, LA County USC is a world-renowned center of excellence for alcohol and alcohol withdrawal. intoxication withdrawal and trauma associated with alcohol. So uh, after our twenty papers, we are going to have the ultra summary by Jess and Jenny. 
And Ken and Swami are going to triple T A L N a bit because yeah. nobody has suggested a better. They've suggested better. It hasn't gotten kicked up the food chain yet and been approved. Mm, is that is that true? I, I don't. don't know. I don't think I that's true. That I think they would kick that. But up they the are food going to be right talking away. about survivorship bias. All right. Month. So time to talk a little nerdy survivorship bias. That sounds good. Okay. Well, action-packed month as usual. Ready? Let's dive and in. And action. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Effect of early treatment with fluvoxamine on risk of emergency care and hospitalization among patients with COVID-19, the TOGETHER randomized platform clinical trial, and this is by Rays et al. from The Lancet. So getting everyone vaccinated is definitely a very difficult task, and that's due to multiple barriers, things like limited resources in some settings, right? It's not all just sort of personal opinion. But in other settings, it is. It's beliefs about the vaccine. And I think the point of all that is that it makes the search for an effective and inexpensive therapy against COVID-19 a critically important topic for scientists and researchers. In a previous study of about 150 outpatients with COVID-19, and we covered this one, fluvoxamine was found to reduce the risk of clinical deterioration. Now, this was a pretty small study, like I said, about 150 patients, and it had a high loss to follow-up rate. The theoretical benefit of fluvoxamine stems from the belief that serotonin dysregulation may play a role in illness related to COVID-19, and that fluvoxamine has both anti-inflammatory and antiviral properties. The TOGETHER trial is a randomized adaptive platform trial from 11 cities in Brazil to investigate the efficacy of repurposed treatments for COVID-19 disease among high-risk adult outpatients. So basically, they're sort of testing eight different things at once, which is what they're doing. And then kind of like, you know, move between those things, start enrolling more in one than another, as it looks like one is going to be more promising or less promising. And that's why they call it an adaptive platform. And here, they're reporting on just the one, just the patients who got fluvoxamine versus the placebo. So they enrolled adults with confirmed COVID-19 and less than seven days of symptoms with at least one high-risk feature. Those included things like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, immunosuppressed, age greater than 50. So those are somewhat similar entry criteria to the studies that we've seen for the monoclonal antibodies. Exactly right. You need to have something that puts you at high risk. And you have to have relatively acute COVID. They excluded patients who were hospitalized. Mm -hmm. They excluded those who were vaccinated for the most part. They excluded those who had chronic lung issues and patients who were already on SSRIs for some other reason or had an uncontrolled psychiatric disorder that was active. Of the 9,020 screened patients, they randomized and enrolled almost 1,500 for this trial. 739 got fluvoxamine and 733 got placebo. The remainder of the eligible patients, almost 2,000, were randomized to another therapy. And again, they don't report on any of those patients who got one of those other seven therapies. The mean age was 50. The mean number of days with symptoms prior to enrollment was just under four days. Their primary outcome was a composite outcome of medical admission due to COVID-19. So it was a disease-specific admission. So if you got admitted for something else, that didn't count towards the primary outcome, or observation in the ED for greater than six hours. Okay. Right? Both have to occur within 28 days of randomization. 
The bottom line here is the primary outcome was observed in 11% of the fluvoxamine group versus 16% of the placebo group. There were no significant differences in any of the secondary outcomes they looked at, including viral clearance, mortality, which was 2% versus 3%, COVID-19 hospitalizations, all-cause hospitalizations, timed hospitalization, hospital length of stay, days on the vent, or time to recovery. Now, it is worth noting that significantly more patients in the fluvoxamine arm stopped their therapy than in the placebo arm, right? And we don't know why, probably because of some side effects that didn't feel well, I'm not really sure, but definitely more stopped, which makes me question a little bit tolerability of the drug. In the infographic for this publication, the authors claim a mortality reduction of up to 91%. But there was no mortality difference. That's a good question <laughs> you ask, Mike. How could that be? Right? But if you, if you pull it up in the Lancet and you look at the infographic, that's exactly what it says. And that's why I think a lot of people sent this one in for us to cover, because that is very confusing. So what they did was they limited for that infographic, and they do a lot of like these little limitations of things. When they limit their analysis to the patients who took at least 80% of their assigned therapy. So like a per protocol analysis. They're calling it a per protocol analysis. The mortality was 12 patients in one group versus one patient in the other group, right? So that's where they're seeing their 91% mortality reduction went from 12 to 1, right? Now, this approach definitely can be subject to a little bit of bias and has become one of the main areas of scrutiny of this paper, like saying, like, this is really kind of overstating what they found in this thing. And there's been a lot of criticism of this paper because of it. Additionally, the primary outcome was actually changed at some point in the trial from, and it's a little bit hard to tell how they initially started. Well, that's, was, that's the problem with these adaptive designs is that, that by, by their nature, they're allowed to change primary outcomes and enrollment criteria, and it gets very, very confusing. That's exactly right. So best I can tell, they started with either mortality or mortality or a 12-hour observation. Okay, but at some point in time, this got switched to mortality or a six-hour observation. And like you said, it's adaptive. They're doing things on the fly. And in the paper, they don't really give an explanation for why they did it. Now, this six-hour observation is kind of weird because that is different than a hospitalization. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm like an ED doc, I'm one of thinking, am I going to have to hospitalize this patient or not? If I keep him in the ED, giving him oxygen for six hours, maybe that's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Right now, the authors justify this by saying where this was studied at those hospitals if you were in the ED more than six hours, that's equivalent to a hospital. That means you were sick enough where you could have been hospitalized. But you weren't. But you weren't. That's exactly <laughs> right. But so, they specifically didn't hospitalize you, but it was like you were hospitalized. Well, they were kind of saying, must have been that the hospital was full. If it wasn't full, you would have been upstairs before six hours or discharged. That's kind of their argument, but that is really going to be eye of a beholder yeah. if you buy that or not as you know equivalent you couldn't, to a yeah. hospitalization. But that's what they say, okay. right? The last thing I want to mention about this paper is that using a disease-specific reason for hospitalization would bias the study in favor of the intervention arm, as admissions due to adverse events would not be counted. Like if somebody got admitted for serotonin syndrome or acute suicidality or something like that, you know, they wouldn't count towards their right. primary outcome. So th that there is a little bit of bias there. They change the outcome, but at the end of the day, it looks like what this is doing is it's saying maybe you're going to have less six-hour observations. Mm -hmm. So I think the infographic on this one is a little bit misleading. 
And it's worth sort of understanding this one in more detail than the average COVID paper. Yeah. And remind me again what the total N enrolled in this was? Uh, It's about 1,500 for this part of the adaptive trial. So 10 times bigger than the prior study on fluvoxamine. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, this is, this becomes a question, you know, it's, it's getting to the low. I mean, this is similar numbers to what actually we see in those monoclonal antibody studies, you know, a number needed to treat of, you know, here, if we go, if we take it at its face, it's 11 versus 16. So that's a 5% absolute difference number needed to treat a 20. And, you know, the, the size of the trial compares with those kinds of things as well. The difference with those, you know, monoclonal antibodies in this one is their outcome here is the composite of hospitalization or greater than six hours of ED length yeah. of stay. And it was all the ED, yeah. the ED OBS so of you six sound, hours. You sound like you're not interested in this therapy at this current time. I'm not buying it. And we also don't certainly know- Certainly it doesn't work for mortality. That, and we that's also don't know you know, if there's any added benefit of this in like other therapies that are going on and things people are doing. In vaccinated patients, we have no clue because all these things were unvaccinated. Too many okay. questions. I think there's a lot of funkiness going on in the methods. I'm not interested. It'd be interesting to know at a population level of people who are already on SSRIs. I mean, half of America's on SSRIs already. Seemingly, if this stuff if works, it's protective, if it's protective, we should be able to see something like that in big thought, administrative data. Just sets. Thought of a pretty clever research idea. Yeah. Well, you know, the problem is trying to get administrative data sets from the last year. Usually, it's about four years for those things to you know sort of get cleaned, but we'll see. I'll ask around, see if anybody's got access to something. Editor's commentary. In this large randomized controlled trial from Brazil, the authors report that fluvoxamine at a dose of 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 days reduced the need for admission or ED observation greater than six hours among unvaccinated patients with confirmed COVID-19 infection and at least one high-risk comorbid condition. Don't be misled by the data and the title as there was no difference in hospitalization. It is up to you to decide if the chance of preventing ED stays greater than six hours outweighs the potential harms from the medications or the possibility that their findings represent a false positive among the eight interventions they were assessing simultaneously. For me, this data is just not convincing enough to act on in my practice. Abstract number two, a randomized trial of IV alteplase before EVT for stroke. This is by LeCouf et al., and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is another trial examining the utility of TPR alteplase for patients with large vessel occlusion who are also candidates for EVT. Recall that over the past couple of years, we've seen, you know, really two or three trials that have shown treatment with EVT alone was non-inferior to treatment with alteplase plus EVT for such cases. The criticisms of those trials have been that they were conducted in largely Asian populations that have a tendency to have a higher proportion of strokes caused by intracranial atherosclerosis, which makes the results potentially less generalizable to other stroke populations. So this study is basically the same thing, but among a European stroke population. The study was conducted across 20 hospitals in the Netherlands, so you know what I, how I think about, feel about the Dutch, France, you know how I feel about France, and Belgium, who I don't think Belgians, who I don't think I've spent enough time berating on EMA. You know, you really spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about some weird things. Anybody ever told you that? Everybody tells me that. Anyway, no, these three countries, and it was conducted recently between 2018 and 2020. And for the record, the paper appears to not have been industry-sponsored. 
It says it's investigator initiated. When you look at the funding sources, it looks like a bunch of governmental agencies that don't have at least close ties to uh, the makers of TPA. Patients had to have a large vessel occlusion with a last known well time of less than 4.5 hours. Large vessel occlusion was proven by CT and geography. They had to present directly to a center capable of doing EVTs, so not like one of these transfer cases. And they were randomized one-to-one to either EVT or the EVT plus alteplase in an open-labeled manner. The primary outcome was functional outcome on the modified Rankin scale, which we see all the time, and important secondary outcomes were the death rate and the ICA rate. They enrolled 547 patients, which apparently, according to their power calculation, was what they thought that they would need and is comparable to the other studies, actually a little bit bigger than most of the the other two to three studies that have been done on this topic. Patients were relatively well-balanced across the treatment groups. The mean age was 70, 58% of them were men. The median duration of stroke, symptoms to randomization, was 90 minutes. 90 minutes. So my arm went weak, I'm randomized 90 minutes. And the median time from stroke until the groin puncture was 135 minutes. So let, you know, just over two hours from symptom onset to you know, puncture time. So I, I just want people to have that in their mind to think about like when the last time you saw a patient that was that acute and you got them into the EVT lab that quickly was. There was a higher proportion of people with AFib in the EVT alone group, but otherwise, like I said before, they were roughly you know, balanced across the groups. So what did it show? The median modified Rankin scale in the EVT alone group at the outcome time was three versus the EVT plus alteplase group, which was two. However, when they do the common odds ratio, which is the statistical test that we usually see for this, it was 0.84 and it crossed one. It went from the confidence interval went from 0.6 to 1.15. So it slightly favored the dual therapy group but in a non-statistically significant manner. Death occurred in 20% of the EVT group and 15.8% in the EVT plus alteplase group. Again, favoring the dual therapy group, but in a non-significant manner. Interestingly, for some reason, symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage was 5% in each group. You know, didn't matter. And that's not what we usually see. Although what they don't present is the asymptomatic intracranial hemorrhage rate which typically is three or four times higher and in, in most studies severely is impacted by alteplase that, that's much higher in that group, but they don't present that data. The study is actually analyzed as both a superior and a non-inferiority trial, like sort of simultaneously, making some of the reading of it actually very annoying. But ultimately, the authors conclude that EVT alone is not superior, which makes sense because it was clearly not superior, nor is it non-inferior to dual therapy. So that little nugget should make our copy editors go crazy. (laughs) It's not superior and not non-inferior. And that is true statistically, but in practical, like, you know, understanding that makes it very difficult to sort of process. You look like you want to say something. No, I'm just sort of thinking. So then how does this sort of add to the overall picture of thinking about this topic? I kind of felt like we were leaning towards that. We, you know, we looked at half dose lytics with EVT and Mm -hmm. it seemed to do fine. And we've looked at some with none. Seems okay. This one seems like it's a little bit of an outlier if I'm sort of understanding it correctly. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a, it is a, you know, it's a great question. It doesn't fit very nicely into the package, but it is 
data that we have to deal with. So I think first, the fact that the needle is slightly pointing towards dual therapy alone in a non-significant manner does not invalidate the previous trials that showed non-inferiority of EVT alone. Second, we should remember that these patients are different patient populations, right? So this may indicate that there's a lot of, or there's heterogeneity when slight differences in patient populations occur. Unfortunately, what we don't know here is, is it because they're of European type and it reflects some pathophysiology of the stroke type? Or is it that they're this really weird, hyperacute stroke folk who come in and are able to get their blood clot removed so quickly? Now, I will say this. I would have hypothesized a priority that if it was that hyperacute, that EVT alone would actually do better than, or, you know, or, at least, or definitely be non-inferior to EVT plus alteplase, right? That the, if you got in there within 20 minutes and plucked the clot out, that that would be, you know, you, there's no reason to do alteplase, you know, in addition to that. But that's just my a priori hypothesis. That is something that they comment on in some other trials, right? Like when they got in there, you know, how yeah. big was the clot? What did it look like? Something yeah. like, had the, they, had the lytic done something they, or not They did done that something? here as well. They looked at and I don't have that table right in front but of me. the time was quick. It was one, really so. quick. They gave them out to place, and they said how many of them had the clot already dissolved in. And I, uh, my memory is that it was not dissolved in roughly 80% in both groups. Which makes sense. Yeah. It's so fast. I mean, yeah. they gave, the other theory of the out place is that, you know, when they remove this clot, yeah, little bitzels, yeah, shower on, and the out place goes and cleans up that mess. You know, you take out the big clot, so that's the one that saves the life. But you know, a little bit is absorbed by that, you know, is, is dissolved by that alta place. Oh, one thing I did want to highlight is they don't actually tell us how many people they screened to get this enrollment, which is really odd because it's such a hyper acute stroke. And to know that it works in this group is, is or, or it may work or, you know, whatever shows, shows a little signal towards working in this group, the alta place, you'd like to know what fraction of strokes this actually is. And they just don't have it in the data. And they say they acknowledge it. They say, we didn't keep a log, which is a really bizarre oversight to have made in such a big and otherwise fairly well-conducted trial. Take that for what it's worth. I think on balance, this just shows us that with stroke, there's these treatment effects of alteplase in particular are marginal at best. And if they work, it's in very selected patient populations. And if they don't work, it may be in you know, broader populations and there might be additional side effects. This paper just gives a, tempers my enthusiasm for dropping alteplase altogether. But I think still, remember, it didn't really outperform EVT alone. So I still think the needle is pointing towards you know, no more alteplase for patients who are EVT candidates, but this just tempers that a little bit. Editor's Commentary this is a relatively large, well-conducted, investigator-initiated study of patients with stroke and large vessel occlusion presenting very early to comprehensive stroke centers. EVT compared with EVT plus alteplase had statistically similar outcomes, although there did appear to be a non-significant trend towards improved results with the EVT and alteplase group. These results are slightly contradictory to previous trials that showed non-inferiority of EVT alone, highlighting the complexity of acute stroke management in diverse populations. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. PCARN algorithms for minor head trauma. Risk stratification estimates from a prospective predict 
cohort study, and this is by Bresson et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So although multiple clinical decision instruments have been proposed to minimize unnecessary head scanning in pediatric patients after trauma, there's a couple of them, PCARN tends to be the one that reigns supreme and seems to be the one that most people use. Now, the PCARN rule was derived to identify children at very low risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury in whom a CT scan could be avoided based on the absence of predictor variables. Although this rule has been widely externally validated, the authors of this paper assert that the risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury within each stratification cohort has not yet been reported in an external patient cohort, at least not very well. So if you're low risk, what is the bleed rate in that group? So you can have some numbers to talk to people about. This is a planned secondary analysis of a prospective multicenter observational study enrolling children with any severity of head trauma from 10 emergency departments spread out across Australia and New Zealand, basically including kids less than 18 years of age with a GCS of 14 or 15, and excluding patients with a trivial mechanism of injury, so just like a tiny little bonk that nobody would think anything about anyway, those with a GCS of less than or equal to 13, and those with pre-existing intracranial pathology, among a few other exclusion criteria, right? which is basically what they did in the PCARN study. So of the just over 20,000 children from the original cohort, 15,000-ish were eligible for analysis after applying these PCARN inclusion and exclusion criteria, so having you know, GCS 14-15. Of those, about 4,000, let's say 25%, were aged less than two years, and about 75% were aged two years or greater. Almost all of them had a GCS of 15, 96%, in fact. And the most common mechanism of injury was a fall, 71%. Overall, just under 10% of patients got a CT. About a quarter of the patients were admitted. A clinically important traumatic brain injury occurred in 0.9% of patients. And only 19 patients, or 0.1%, required some kind of neurosurgical intervention. The observed frequency of clinically important traumatic brain injury... That's all comers. That's all comers in this cohort who started out with a GCS of 14 or 15. Okay. So this is sort of what they had wanted to look at, was what's the frequency of clinically important traumatic brain injury based on your risk cohort, right? So if you came out high risk in PCARN, it was 8.5%. If you came out intermediate risk, it was 0.2%. And if you came out very low risk, it was 0%. And that's for kids who were less than two years old. Those numbers were pretty similar in the older kids, so greater than or equal to two. 5.7% bleed rate if you were in the high, 0.7% if you were in the intermediate, and zero if you were in the very low risk cohort. And that's just the bleed rate, obviously. That's the clinically important bleed rate. Yeah, but not the neurosurgery bleed rate. That is the neurosurgery. That, well, they have clinically important bleed rate defined just like PCARN did, with needing something, needing some hospitalization, right. needing some... It's, they didn't all get operated on. That's true, but they right, were things was... that they felt were important to find okay. and watch. These numbers are pretty much what PCARN found. Mm-hmm. So they're basically saying what PCARN found in their cohort, we're finding the same thing at ours. The high-risk group 
had higher rates, not unexpectedly, of CT, of abnormal CT, and of admission when compared to the intermediate risk group and the very low risk group, right? So we were a little more cautious with them. We scanned more. We admitted more. Now, the way PCARN is set up, you're supposed to scan kids in the high-risk group, not scan kids in the very low-risk group, and the intermediate-risk group is sort of a dealer's choice, right? Either supposed to OBS them or scan them. So there are a lot of tables and analyses in this paper. It's actually really long, this paper, with some good information in it. But for me, one of the ones worth looking at and talking about for a second is the incidence of clinically important traumatic brain injury by combinations of intermediate risk factors. So basically saying, if you have more of those intermediate risk factors, of which there's four, is it more likely that you have a bleed? Because I think there's a table about it. Probably. It's worth talking about. (laughs) Yes, it is. So, and those factors are the predictors in the intermediate group are history of LOC, history of vomiting, severe mechanism, and severe headache. So in both age cohorts, the risk of having a clinically important traumatic brain injury did go up as the number of predictors increased. But the relationship looked a little bit clearer in older kids, but I think that's probably just because there were more of them for analysis, right? In the kids greater than or equal to two, the rate of clinically important traumatic brain injury was 0.4% if you had one predictor present, 1.4 with two, 3% with three of them, and with four of them, 25%. Now, Take that with a grain of salt because the N was pretty small for people who had four. In fact, there were only four kids in the whole sample who had four positive in the intermediate group. So one out of four ended up having a clinically important. But it does make some sense. And I think we've always kind of felt that way. Like if they start to stack up more of these, the chance. So this maybe can help you say, maybe I'll scan instead of OBS if they have all four, three of the four or something. So this is a really large study looking at the PCARN rules has some limitations, including a loss to follow-up rate of 10% and not that many high-risk infants, kind of like the original PCARN study. But this is some good real-world clinical data validating some of the numbers that we know from the PCARN group. Commentary. In this large prospective cohort study from Australia and New Zealand, the authors report similar frequencies of clinically important traumatic brain injury when kids were stratified by PCARN as were observed in the original derivation and validation work. It's good to roughly know these numbers when talking to patients and families so shared decision-making can be used when appropriate. They also look at the predictive values of each component of the rule independently and in combination, which although limited by numbers in some cases, seems useful to me, particularly for kids who fall in the intermediate risk category. Abstract number four, bloody diarrhea and Shiga toxin-producing E. coli hemolytic uremic syndrome in children, data from the Ital Kids HUS network. This is by Ardicino et al. in the Journal of Pediatrics. This is actually a pretty convoluted study looking at the development of the hemolytic uremic syndrome in children with bloody diarrhea, something that I think we all learn about and talk about, frankly, and on clinical rounds, it comes up not super infrequently, but I don't think we've ever covered a paper on it in EMA. I don't think we have in uh, Paper Chase. Yeah, no, I think it's just prior you know, lives. Something but. we talk about and like probably reflects that there's not a lot of new literature or data coming out about it. So although it's a convoluted study, I think there's something in here that we can take from it. So the basic principles are that Shiga toxin-producing E. coli infections can cause HUS in children. 
The authors assert that this is actually the most common cause of acute injury in children after the neonatal period. I have no idea if that's actually true. Using antibiotics to treat this form of dysentery appears to increase the incidence of the hemolytic uremic syndrome. But we have not had a lot of data telling us how many children with bloody stool have this type of Shiga toxin-producing organism versus other less pathogenic causes that potentially might benefit from antibiotics or something like that. So for some reason, and this is the whack-a-mole part of this study, in 2010, an area in northern Italy became obsessed with reducing HUS and renal failure in children. 2010. 2010. I have no idea why. They don't explain why, but they organized this thing called the Italkid HUS Network, which really makes no sense because in Italian, kid has no meaning. It should have been like Ital Bambino. No, I mean, right? I mean, why would you do that? Because it's hard, it's hard to think of good acronyms. And the, you know, you use other languages now? Yeah, you know what? I don't I- want to be you know, Anglo-centric, Anglo-centric here. I mean, why not? Oh, no, but I see it as the other way. I say next time we're designing a study, we use a different language. I know. I'm going to have one. I'm going to use Japanese characters. That's not bad. (laughs) That's not bad. It looks good because that's going to stand out. You won't be able to pronounce it, but it'll it'll, it'll stand out. The rule probably won't be very good anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it'll give something for people to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, but it's really true that they did this thing in this very specific area and they organized 63 what they call clinical units. And these 63 pediatric units would screen all children with bloody diarrhea with an ultimate aim to prevent the development of renal failure in HUS. The present study is a bit of a messy description of this experience. There's a lot reported, but the main purpose as I see it, or at least the main purpose that I'm bringing up, is to describe the proportion of kids with bloody diarrhea who came in through this screening program who actually had a Shiga toxin-producing E. coli and the fraction of those kids who went on to develop the hemolytic uremic syndrome. The authors claim that they screened all children who presented to any of these 63 units with acute bloody diarrhea for the Shiga toxin over this 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, and that amounts to almost 5,000 children. So 4,700 kids. That's a lot. The main finding of these 4,700 kids with bloody diarrhea that were screened, 214 of them, or almost 5%, 4.5%, were Shiga toxin positive. Okay? Of those, of that 214, 34 of them, or 15% of them, developed the hemolytic uremic syndrome. So that's 34 people out of 4,700 total people which is just under 1% of all the bloody diarrhea kids. They found several other interesting little tidbits, including the age distribution of bloody diarrhea was heavily skewed towards younger children. 64% of the kids that were screened for bloody diarrhea were 0 to 5 years old. But the positivity for Shiga toxin was similar across the age group. So even though there were fewer kids that were 10 to 15 that had bloody diarrhea, the proportion of those kids with bloody diarrhea that had Shiga toxin was around the same. It was always around 4% in each of the 0 to 5, 5 to 10, 10 to 15 sort of age groups. The positivity for Shiga toxin tended to spike in the late summer and early fall, which I have no idea if that's a Italy effect or a E. coli effect. Only patients with Shiga toxin 2 developed HUS, which is interesting because there's both. And ultimately, the point of their program actually failed. That is, 
despite aggressively screening all of these kids and then the ones that were positive, they had some interventions on and stuff like that. The incidence of HUS did not change in their overall Northern Italian population. But I think that's for us a little bit of an aside. It's worth noting that though they say this is a screening program, it only occurred at these 63 units, which are not well-defined and may reflect referral units as opposed to sort of like routine office care environments or emergency departments. They just don't explain what these units are. So I think that that probably, again, we don't know because they don't explain, but it probably biases their findings upward if it's a referral unit and you get sort of sicker kids with bloody diarrhea. Obviously, they're going to have a higher proportion of shigatoxing stuff and bad things overall compared to like a general population of kids with, you know, mostly watery diarrhea with a little bit that wouldn't be referred to a, you know, a specialty center or anything like that. But I don't actually have any way to definitely prove that. One thing though, I, I think this represents an upper limit of the possibility of shigatoxing, not a lower limit. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the questions here is sort of the generalizability, yeah. right? Not only just the Italy, but these referral units and stuff. So I guess I'm curious, you know, like next time a resident asks you in rounds, oh, yeah. I have this kid here with bloody diarrhea. I'm worried yeah. about the shigatoxin. Like, boy, what are you going to say? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I've never seen this thing and I do find it informative, right? I think we should be, again, we don't know. We don't know about whether this extends beyond Northern Italy. You're absolutely right. We don't know anything like that. I think that this to me, does not mandate that you test all these kids. Only less than one in 20 of them had it, and that's probably an upper limit. And of those, only a small fraction of those developed this HUS you know, complication. And there's no evidence that all of their interventions actually reduce the incidence of HUS. So for me, this becomes informative. It suggests that we certainly probably shouldn't be giving antibiotics to these kids, that the risk of them having one of these things is too high, maybe one in 20. So maybe you have a number needed to harm of somewhere in that 1 to 20, 1 to 30 range, and you don't want to do that. On the other hand, there's no particular reason to screen them for this because it doesn't appear the interventions matter, but it does mean that they should be informed of this possibility, that it's not a 1 in 10,000 kind of risk. So we should tell the patient, you know, hey, look, there's this possibility you're going to develop this thing. You need to follow up with your doctor in a few days. I have no idea if in a few days they should get, if they're still having bloody diarrhea, they should get it checked then. I have no idea if their bloody diarrhea persists, if they should get a creatinine checked, you know, or a urine dipstick to check for blood or hematuria or something like that in, a week later or anything like that. But I do think this gives us some information that affirms the practice of probably not giving antibiotics for dysentery in children and sort of emphasizes the need for follow-up in these kids. Editor's Commentary in this large population-based study, 4.5% of children with acute bloody diarrhea were found to be infected with Shiga toxin-producing E. coli. Of these, 15% developed HUS, which is less than 1% of the total population with bloody diarrhea. Though the generalizability of these results have not been established, we would be wise to keep these proportions in mind when counseling our patients about the need for follow-up and return precautions. Abstract number five. The effect of 12 milligrams versus 6 milligrams of dexamethasone on the number of days alive without life support in adults with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia, the COVID steroid 2 randomized trial. This is by the COVID steroid 2 trial group from JAMA. So steroids for the most part now are considered standard of care for patients with severe and critical COVID-19 infection 
based on data from several trials, with the largest one being the recovery trial. Although the recovery used a dose of dexamethasone at 6 mg per day, most of the other trials actually used 12 mg per day. And data from non-COVID ARDS trials suggest that higher doses, up to 20 mg per day, might be better. But there are some concerns with these higher doses, primarily the development of fungal infections. That's what we worry about in these sick patients. The COVID steroid 2 trial was conducted to evaluate the efficacy and safety of higher doses of dexamethasone in hospitalized adults with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia. This is a blinded, randomized trial from hospitals in Denmark, India, Sweden, and Switzerland, enrolling adults requiring either 1. supplemental oxygen at 10 liters per minute or more, 2. non-invasive ventilation or CPAP, or 3. invasive mechanical ventilation, and then randomizing them to get either 6 milligrams or 12 milligrams of daily dexamethasone. They calculated they would need 1,000 patients to show a 15% reduction in 28-day mortality. Although they enrolled 1,000 patients, due to lack of consent, among some other issues, they present data on 971, so just below their power calculation. The patients were very well matched at baseline in all relevant characteristics, other than a slightly higher incidence of diabetes in the 6 milligram group, so 34% versus 27%. Otherwise, looked very similar. Hey, you'd think that would bias towards the 12 milligram group because yes, that's right. diabetics should have complications from the higher dose. That's okay. exactly right. The primary outcome of number of days alive without life supports, that's invasive mechanical ventilation, circulatory support, or kidney replacement therapy at 28 days, did not demonstrate a statistically significant difference between arms. 22 days in the 12 milligram group versus 20.5 days in the 6 milligram group. However, when they present the 95% confidence interval for the difference here, the difference was between the CI, the point estimate, was between 0 and 2.6 days. So that lower limit of that confidence interval was right at 0, right? If it had just been like the tiniest bit more in one direction, this has a P of 0.07, this may have been a positive trial. So that's why people are talking about this one. Secondary outcomes did not differ between the groups, including days alive without life support and days alive outside of the hospital at 90 days, 28-day mortality, 90-day mortality, serious adverse events, and reactions. However, 28-day mortality was 27.1% in the 12-milligram group versus 32.3% in the 6-milligram group. And they say it in the paper, if only three fewer patients had died in the 12-milligram group, this would have been a significant outcome. So they're kind of like... That's that reverse fragility index we talked about before. Exactly right. We which, ta- I was just going to mention that. We talked about that a few, I guess maybe four or five months ago now. At least, at least more now than people that. Now are, people are talking about it. Yeah, and we were highly critical, if you'll recall. we're talking about <laughs> it. So although they enrolled slightly less than their initial power calculation, this may have made the difference. And I think for most ICU providers, this is going to leave this door open a little bit for further study and interpretation of the result. What we don't know, have no clue on in this paper, is how these varying doses would change if the patients were given other currently accepted therapies for things like antivirals, these antibody cocktails, this tocilizumab and stuff. They didn't get that here. It was just steroids or no steroids. So in combination with these other things, we don't know if 6 milligrams, 12 milligrams, 
you know, all this COVID stuff is going to be a moving target. And this one, I don't know how much relevance it is to like the average ED provider. Likely you're just going to do whatever your ICU docs tell you. But if there's like, oh, no, we were doing six and now we're doing 12 or we're doing 12 and now we're doing six, know that there is this big paper out there, which is sort of creating some of this solution slash confusion. Right. And I, I, it is complicated because we do give that first dose in the emergency department. And if they're like, oh, I can't believe you only gave six and you're supposed to give 12, that seems like this is still, you know, it has to be reported as a negative study. So it sort of is like, you know, dealer's choice at this point. It, it's Certainly not outside of a standard of they, care. They do that appropriately. <laughs> they reported it negative and they're saying six sounds right right now. Yeah. But, you know, you have to convert this over to right. Some places are given solumedrol. Not everybody's yeah. giving dexamethasone, but if you're given dex, it's probably going to be six. We definitely didn't see this huge benefit that we see in other ARDS conditions where the higher steroid dose makes you do a little bit better. Editor's commentary. In this large international randomized trial, the authors did not find a statistically significant benefit of 12 milligrams over 6 milligrams of dexamethasone in critically ill patients with COVID-19. However, they also did not see evidence of harm and suggest that they may have been underpowered to detect a difference in mortality if it existed. Importantly, we don't know how any of their results hold up in combination with other therapies that are now considered standard of care. Abstract number six, ultrasound versus landmark-guided medium-sized joint arthrocentesis, colon, a randomized trial. This is by Gibbons et al., and it's in Academic Emergency Medicine. So I'm a big fan of ultrasound-guided procedures that are otherwise difficult to perform based solely on landmarks, and I think the authors have hit on one here. Arthrocentesis of medium-sized joints, which include basically, for the purposes of our discussion here, wrists, elbows, and ankles. We know that aspirating these joints can be a problem, right? Studies suggest that we're not even very good at determining whether there's an effusion there. For example, that physical exam is only about 60% sensitive for effusion. Then, of course, the landmark-based approach is a bit crude, and as you're sticking needle into a space where you think there might be an effusion, patients start complaining of pain. Then you have to make this decision, which I've, I've, you know, I've been down you know, many, many times. Do I keep sticking them because I need to figure out if this is septic or arthritis or not? Or do I abandon the procedure because I think either, one, I'm never going to get it, or two, there really is no effusion there. And then when you abandon the procedure, what do you do? If there's an effusion that you didn't tap, that could be still concerning. If there is no effusion, obviously it's less so. So it's a problematic area. In this study, they conduct a randomized controlled trials of patients in whom the treating provider thought they needed a medium joint arthrocentesis. They don't exactly explain why they thought it, but in the tables, it looks like there was, you know, a lot of them ended up with a diagnosis of septic arthritis. So I suspect that overall the concern was septic arthritis. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive the aspiration via landmark-guided approach or ultrasound guidance. The study protocol is pretty similar to what we often see in this ultrasound literature. It's a convenient sample of cases that were approached when the ultrasound team was available. They opened up an envelope, said what to do, and then they went for it. Importantly, the person performing the joint tap was a resident and not the ultrasound team with variable experience doing the procedure, but who'd had some general training in the technique per their usual ultrasound curriculum. The authors state that they did not specifically train them in aspiration for the purposes of this study. 
So the ultrasound team sort of went in there. It's a little unclear if it's like the treating resident who did the procedure or if it's the ultrasound team resident, the person rotating on ultrasound that did it. it seemed like the team was sort of there to observe more than they were to do the procedure. But it's a little confusing. Ultimately, it was PGY1s to 3s who did the procedure. A research associate who was supposedly blinded to the study purpose recorded the data. The key outcomes were first pass success, which when you say it out loud, it sounds okay. But in reality, I'm like, is that that important? You know, this isn't intubation where that's associated, lack of first pass success is associated with hypoxemia and stuff. Like, it's like not that big of a deal if you have to stick twice. Nonetheless, the second thing was the number of attempts. The third thing was the complications. And the fourth thing was the need to cross over. Was the ultrasound like a real-time yes. ultrasound where you're watching the needle yes. go in? It wasn't a mark. No. It okay. was real-time ultrasonography, dynamic ultrasonography. They did some power calculation that, I mean, honestly, it really doesn't make any sense, but they ended up saying they needed roughly 50 patients and they enrolled 44 patients, 23 in the landmark group and 21 in the ultrasound group. I don't think that their power calculation indicates that they actually had enough power to detect anything, but it doesn't really matter. 23 landmark, 21 ultrasound. Most of the taps were of the wrist, 50%. 40% were of the ankle and 10% only were of the elbow. What were the findings? Ultrasound had a first-pass success rate of 82% compared with only 47% of the landmark group. Overall success was 94% in the ultrasound group compared with 60% in the landmark-based group. Okay, so there's a high success rate in one and only a medium success rate in the other. The number of attempts was 1.3 on average for the ultrasound group, versus two in the landmark-based group. And all of this allegedly reached some level of statistical significance. This is encouraging, but I do believe the, the numbers are a little bit too good to be true. And, and there's a few reasons for that. One, the operators were very inexperienced, you know, both in ultrasound, but also in the landmark-based group. So you take a PGY1 who's never done this before. It seems to me that having the ultrasound would increase their success rate because they can see things better, but even just having done a few of these and knowing where, you know, how to feel that sponginess of the joint effusion probably would be better. So I think that that would tend to bias in a pretty significant manner towards the ultrasound group and away from the, the landmark-based group. Yeah. And, and it's not only just that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just don't know what happened during yep. those taps, right? Because it sounds like at bare minimum in the ultrasound group, you not only had an ultrasound, but you had another provider in the room like could have been a fellow, could have been an attending, could have been somebody quite senior going, no, 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 you got to yeah. tilt that angle a little bit. You want to like, you know, do a little bit this here and there. In addition to the ultrasound, they might have had like real time attending fellow input, whereas in the, I'll call it the control group, the sort of non ultrasound group, they might have been in there on their own or with right. like a, you know, like well, a even resident they, one year more senior to them right. or something. So, or even if they had an ultrasound team, they didn't have the ultrasound. So it does like, there's nothing to say of like, hey, you know, we, yeah. Right. So they said in the paper that they didn't provide coaching, but obviously, you know, we've all been in situations like this. It's very difficult not to provide coaching in a teaching environment and such like, you know, even if it's subtle, that could make a, a significant difference. So I do think that there's a good number of reasons to favor that this might have biased towards ultrasound. There's also, we really don't know how they selected candidates for enrollment. For example, cases that were like obvious, right? Maybe just, you know, like they're like, oh, this thing is so swollen, right? They might not have decided to enroll these kind of cases, right? Because it was a convenient sample, not a consecutive sample. And so you go and tap those ones 
and you know landmark works just fine and this might represent that more what do you want to call it you know this more nuanced group where you're not sure if there's an effusion there it's going to be hard etc 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 there is one other issue with randomization that you know I'd be remiss not to bring up for example or in this case somehow 35% so 8 of the 23 patients in the landmark based group did not have an effusion at all. After all, when they like they couldn't get it, they looked in there, they crossed over to ultrasound, and they're like, oh, there is no effusion, which is you know fine. Eight out of 23 is a large number, but it is what it is. But that number was much smaller in the ultrasound group. There were only four, so not ha- literally half, half as many patients did not have an effusion. And that's kind of like hard to understand how that could be, right? That's just a failure of randomization. And obviously, you can't be successful on a tap if there's no effusion in there in the first place. And it just fell that the ultrasound group had fewer of those potential cases versus the landmark-based group. And I'll believe that it was due to random luck, but it's a failure of randomization. Having said all of this, I think we can all relate to needing and wanting to tap a wrist and getting a dry tap, then being stuck in that sort of gray area where you need to decide whether you, you want to admit them for a septic arthritis workup, or roll the dice and treat them for gout or CPPD or whatever. And it's nice to have this available to potentially boost that success rate and you know, also to determine whether there actually is a joint effusion present. So you know, for my money, I think if you're going to invest in ultrasound for anything, procedural indications are the ones to go. And this one is probably a good one. And in fact, I just, after reading this, and it's been in the, lurking in the back of my mind. I talked to our ultrasound team just yesterday. I'm going to go learn how to do this. <laughs> I don't know how. And I've been in taps before where the resident's like, look, there's some fluid there. And I'm like, I'm just going to go where I know where to go. I'll show you. And usually it works out, but I'm, 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 I'm down for this one. No, even with, the, even, even with the, the relatively weak data surrounding it. An old it. dog learning a new trick. Editor's commentary. This small limited RCT shows a markedly improved success rate for ultrasound-guided aspiration of medium-sized joints compared with the landmark-based approach. The study methods likely bias the effect size in favor of ultrasound, but the general point is probably correct. Quick take. Abstract number seven. The erector spinae plane block for acute pain management in the ED patient with rib fractures this is by Sordar et al. from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this one is a quick take. So pain from rib fractures is difficult to control and has been shown that resultant hypoventilation can lead to respiratory distress, impacting things like ICU admissions and mortality. Opioids represent standard first-line therapy, but recently this ESP block has been discussed for a wide variety of painful conditions of the thorax. We covered a paper, I think, looking at it for renal colic. To perform the procedure, basically you have the patient either sitting or in a lateral decubitus position, you identify the thoracic spinous processes, move the probe out laterally a couple centimeters to visualize a transverse process where the erector spinae muscle just sits on top of these, you put a little bit of saline in there to lift the muscle off the bones, open a potential space, and then dump about 40 cc's of fluid in there, a mix of bupivacaine and saline. It's a very superficial injection thought to be a safe procedure. This here is a pilot prospective observational study of a convenient sample of adult ED patients with rib fractures and ongoing pain despite maximal therapy as assessed by the treating provider. 
Basically, this is a pilot in the truest sense of the word, right? They didn't do like a lot of methods here. They didn't talk a lot about the screening process. They did nine blocks on nine different patients and reported on it and said the mean pain scores went from 9.89 before the block. 9.89. There's a lot of pain. Well, they had already been maxed out on therapy. 9.89 before the block to 3.56 after the block. They didn't have any complications in their N of 9, like pneumothorax or hemodynamic instability. But, you know, these were all done by sort of the ultrasound team, right? The people who know how to do this really well, that they didn't, like they often do in these ultrasound pilot studies. That's okay. That's like, let's give it a best case scenario here. It's a very small study. They were very well versed in the technique. But I think this is going to open the door to study the generalizability, safety, and potential impact of this block on outcomes other than short-term pain relief too. Maybe long-term pain relief, maybe, you know, hypoventilation, all those things. It's cool. It seems easy. We're seeing a lot of papers on this now. You should know that it's out there. Edit this commentary. In this small pilot observational study, the authors reported a large decrease in pain scores through the use of an erector spinae plane block in patients with rib fracture. More study on safety is definitely needed before incorporating this into routine practice but it does seem easy to perform and has a big potential upside, so I imagine we'll be hearing a lot more about this block in the coming years. Abstract number eight. Efficacy of empiric antibiotic management of septic olecranon bursitis without bursal aspiration in emergency department patients. This is by Bide et al., again, in academic emergency medicine. So here we go again. This is a topic that comes up all the time in clinical practice but to my recollection, never in the history of EMA or paper chase. Olecranon bursitis. The basic point is that people come in with a swollen olecranon bursa all the time. Most of the time, it's clear that it's traumatic or otherwise and not septic, but sometimes that's less clear. You know, it's red, it hurts, etc. What do you do? So there's reason to think that aspirating it's a bad idea. There are studies in the orthopedic literature that show that as many as 50% of those patients with septic bursitis that are aspirated develop a chronic draining wound, while those who are not aspirated can be treated with antibiotics, etc., and don't develop this sort of nasty fistula from their olecranon. On the other hand, the principle of source control says that if there's a pocket of pus in there, that you should evacuate that pus, and you may want to culture it to know if you know the treatment that you're choosing is appropriate or not. I, for what it's worth, have learned and always taught not to aspirate these things, but I really you know, don't know of any data that comments on this. The authors here conduct a retrospective study looking at ED management of, quote, suspected olecranon bursitis. The paper is mostly descriptive, but I think offers some interesting insights. First off, kudos to the authors for doing a high-quality chart review with really very good to excellent methods. They had very careful variable definition, iterative assessments, and triplicate review of 20% of the charts to find everything really, really well. Really, the only thing that wasn't perfect was that the reviewers were not blind to the study purpose. They identified 266 ED visits over an eight-year period with a diagnosis of olecranon bursitis through EHR review. The mean age was 57, almost 90% of them were male, 15% had diabetes. A lot of them got an x-ray, like two-thirds of them got an x-ray. About half got a white count. A third got some form of an ESR or CRP. 
a quarter had an orthopedic consult just to lay out what these cases sort of look like. Only four patients, so 1.5%, had an aspiration in the ED. So that basically just didn't happen. 15% of them were admitted to the hospital for septic bursitis. 29% of the cases were discharged from the ED without antibiotics, and 56% were discharged from the ED with antibiotics. And that's the group that they say is suspected olecranon bursitis. Like, why would you send them home with antibiotics if you weren't suspicious for olecranon bursitis? And that, that makes sort of sense to me. Of that group, there were very few loss to follow-ups based on their electronic you know, health record review. Of that group of suspected olecranon bursitis, 88% had an apparently uncomplicated course with no need for further surgery, admission, or any evidence that they had an aspiration of their olecranon bursa at a later time. 6% had a delayed bursa aspiration. So about 90% didn't, 6% did. So eight, eight subjects, that happened after their ED visit. And a few were subsequently hospitalized for IV antibiotics. All of those that were hospitalized for IV antibiotics, this is the ones that went home, got their IV antibiotics and healed up without getting an aspiration. Finally, even the patients who were admitted to the hospital for septic olecranon bursitis at the index visit, even of all of those, because there was, you know, some whatever quarter of the patients that that happened to, almost none of them had an aspiration or an opening of their olecranon bursa, and they healed up with just IV antibiotics and, you know, supportive measures. So what do we know about this? So to me, this says, you know, is it possible that there's a group of people with really nasty looking septic olecranon bursitis that you absolutely have to open up and drain? It's possible, but that wasn't really observable in this data. The bottom line is that aspiration of the olecranon bursa seems to be largely unnecessary, even if the clinical suspicion for septic bursitis is high. You can treat them with either IV or oral antibiotics, depending on how sick and nasty things are, and don't need to aspirate the joint. Now, so few aspirations actually happened here. We have no idea if any of them developed chronic fistulous tracts and if there's actually harm associated with it. But if they all got better without it, why risk it at all? So to me, this affirms the sort of general notion of almost none of these need to be aspirated, certainly not in the ED, and they should be followed up with maybe one in you know, 20 or so ultimately needing some further treatment down the line that might include an aspiration, but the ortho guys can decide on that. Yeah, I remember when we were doing the selection, I had a particular interest in this one because I'm like, I'm not currently doing a lot of source mm -hmm. control on these. So I want to make sure I'm not, you know, yeah. cursing my patients to a life of arm falling off mm -hmm. or something like that. So it's good. That does affirm my practice. I think it's probably what everyone's doing. You know, but people do tap these. I frequently take sign out on cases and I'm like, oh yeah, we tapped it. And I'm always like, is that a good idea? That, I, I learned that that was a bad idea, and, but there's not really any, a lot of evidence, you know? Yeah, I had a case about this very recently, like with an olecranon bursitis, one of my recent shifts. And I asked you a question, Mike. Uh, you know, when we, so when we were training, what did we call olecranon bursitis? We didn't call it Like olecranon. the colloquial name, you know, you call it like something elbow. I honestly don't remember. They were like carpet layers. Elbow. Yeah, plumber's elbow, plumber's, carpet, carpet layer. layers. bursitis is prepatellar bursitis right. in my mind. Right. So there, there, there's a few things, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like kind of going through these things and they were looking at me like I was, like they had never heard of it. They just call it like bursitis. I'm like, maybe that's things. So I'm like, let me just Wikipedia this thing. Yes, really go quick. ahead. What's like the common name 
for Electronom bursitis currently? What are people doing, right? I'm trying to think. Uh, we used to call it Popeye elbow. Yeah, too, okay. Right? That's, that's the yeah. one, right? The current one, there are two. You're going to love the second one. Okay. Okay, first one, student's elbow. Because you're sitting there on your desk. Sitting there on your desk, holding now iPad or something. And I, I can honestly elbow. say, I've never seen a student with this. Go okay. ahead. Next. Student's elbow. Second one, you're going to love this one. Swellbow. Swellbow. <laughs> He's got swellbow. He's got it's he got the swellbow. If you you know, if you want to trust Dr. Wikipedia, next time you see one of these, I'ma call it swellbow. That's so ridiculous. Edit his commentary. In this study, Elecranon bursitis was almost always successfully managed through a combination of conservative therapy with or without antibiotics. Though the risks of chronic fistula cannot be accurately assessed in the study, the fact that almost all the patients resolved through this conservative management suggests that ED aspiration of this bursa is almost never necessary. Abstract number nine. Dexamethasone versus prednisone in children hospitalized for acute asthma exacerbations. This is by Himani et al. from Hospital Pediatrics. So there have been lots of studies demonstrating the benefit of corticosteroids in pediatric asthma on all kinds of outcomes, including ED length of stay, need for hospitalization, and relapse rate and return visits. More recently, some randomized control trials have shown that dexamethasone, either in a single or double dose, like when they lead, they get one more dose, is likely to be as effective as the traditional three to five day course of prednisone with better patient compliance and palliability. But all these trials focus on patients who are being discharged from the ED. And these authors are basically saying, well, what about the patients who were admitted, right? If dexamethasone works just as good for the, you know, as prednisone for the ones being discharged, maybe we should look at if it's working just as good for the people being admitted. This is a multi-center retrospective cohort study from three academic emergency departments, including kids aged 3 to 21 years admitted for asthma who received either parenteral or oral monotherapy with dexamethasone or prednisone. They further broke down the population into patients who got their first dose of steroids before or after arrival in the ED. And that was like a little bit confusing to me because they didn't say exactly where that occurred. Like if it was the patient's house or a transfer, I read it carefully and I just couldn't figure it out. Of just over 1,400 identified patients, 981 to 70% got only DEX and 30% got only prednisone. So that's just state of play. That's what they were giving these people. They were pretty similar at baseline other than the fact, let's see if you think this is important. I'm listening. That asthma severity was much higher among the kids that got prednisone. Yeah, that seems significant. Specifically in the patients that got steroids started before arrival. And again, that's like that weird group that I don't totally understand. Those also got more pre-arrival albuterol and magnesium. So they just seem sicker, like they were just a sicker cohort of patients. The results, to be honest, are very difficult to follow in this paper, particularly due to the fact that they divided everything into these two cohorts, which they don't really explain why they did it. They like are looking at, you know, they, they never present the data for the overall cohort. Nowhere in this paper. They're always talking about the patients who got their first dose of steroids before arrival and after us, two separate patient populations, which I don't really understand. 
Essentially, they found that among patients who got no steroids prior to arrival, the dexamethasone group had a significantly shorter hospital length of stay than the prednisone group. 24, basically 0.5 hours versus about 30 hours. This was not observed in the cohort that got steroids before arrival, but again, I don't totally understand that division. Rates of more serious events like PICU transfers, ED revisits, hospital admissions were too infrequent to really assess in this data because they did exclude all patients admitted to the ICU in the first place, right? They, they weren't that sick. They were sort of like wardy, maybe tele-E style pediatric patients. Now, well, there's certainly, I can't imagine there would be any asthma exacerbations admitted to the PICU that didn't get steroids before they got up to the PICU. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, they come out in this conclusion of this paper really strong. Mm-hmm. They say our data support the routine use of dexamethasone over prednisone, that it is better for admitted patients But there are some really significant limitations in this paper, in addition to those that are sort of common with retrospective studies, right? Like, you know, looking at the chart and things like that. I want to at least talk about three of them. The first is this division of the data into patients who got steroids prior to the hospital arrival and those did not seems very arbitrary to me. I'm just not sure why this was done. Maybe they could have thought about things like dividing them into patients who got any treatment before arrival, like if you got albuterol or something and those did not, or at least provide combined data for the overall population without dividing it. The fact that they did this weird divide that most studies don't do makes me skeptical. Number two, looks like all the sicker patients got prednisone. And this may explain everything, right? Why it didn't work as well because this was an unbalanced group to start with. But number three, they excluded all the patients who got more than one steroid type. So you had to have either dexamethasone or prednisone monotherapy for the duration of your admission. So that means if somebody got dex, for example, and they got up to the ward or telly and they were like, this kid is still sick, I'm going to give them prednisone because the dex simply didn't work, Mm. that is lost. Mm. They don't have any information on that patient. And that was a lot. It was like 500 patients who fell into Mm. that category of people who got both of the two medications, and we have no clue why, because those are failures that are not captured here within the data. So there's a lot of flaws here. This is not world's greatest paper. So you're saying dex. (laughs) (laughs) You lost me after the first sentence. But basically, you're saying Dex is way better than prednisone. You know, what I'm saying is, if you, if you are taking this abstract at face value, you may read this and go, oh, man, I guess I'm supposed to give you this hospital pediatrics. I admit pediatric patients to a hospital. That sounds very relevant. They seem like experts in pediatrics, they, if what they say should go. But I'm going to go ahead and say there are way too many flaws here to really take this paper seriously. It's still an open question. Probably both are fine. Editor's Commentary In this retrospective observational study, the authors assert that kids hospitalized with mild to moderate asthma exacerbations have a significantly shorter hospital length of stay when given dexamethasone versus prednisone on admission, but there are many significant flaws in the methods of this paper that make me doubt the validity of this conclusion. Abstract number 10. MRI outcomes in patients with acute onset vertigo in the emergency department, a prospective study by Samreen et al. in clinical neurology and neurosurgery. And this also falls into the category, like the last abstract, of one where I just think they got it all wrong. 
So this study asks how reliable the clinical evaluation is for stroke in patients presenting with acute vertigo. And it's a very problematic study. The methods are really poor, which limits the importance of the findings, but I want to go over it so that you know people don't actually hear these numbers tossed about and it misinforms us. This is allegedly a prospective study of patients with vertigo who presented to a single site ED in India over a one-year period from 2019 to 2020. The authors state that all patients with acute vertigo of less than 24 hours over the age of 18 were assessed by ED physicians and a neurologist or an ENT within an hour of their arrival and got an MRI. That's like what we do, but it's plainly not accurate. Functionally, what this is a study of is anyone who had acute vertigo and got an MRI. We have no idea how many really had an acute vertigo and did not get an MRI. They just don't say that. They just say, oh, this is, we did this with everybody unless their symptoms got completely better, which they do acknowledge that they didn't get an MRI on everyone if their symptoms got better, but they don't tell us how many that is. In reality, though, they only enrolled 70 patients with acute vertigo, and it sounded like a pretty big emergency department. Now, we all know that acute vertigo is a really common complaint. Yeah, you see complaint. 70 in a month. I see a triage. I see like 70 in a, in a, in a docket triage shift. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So obviously, this is like a really distorted population of people in whom probably the acute vertigo was not obvious what the, the cause was. And so I think about it, it's a little better to so conceive if you, of So if it. you reframe it, then there's maybe some, there's some value here. Th- maybe, yeah. And I, and I do think that there's one or two nuggets to pull out of it. Of the 70 people who had vertigo and got an MRI, right, 32% of those had a stroke, okay, 32%. They claim, and this is really interesting, they claim that 29 patients had acute vertigo with no clinical signs. They don't explain what no clinical signs is. Other than the vertigo. Other, well, no clinical, you know, as opposed to a symptom, what I the see. sign was. I guess, so I guess in other words, other ones had problems. Maybe they had dysmetria or I don't know. They don't explain at all. Diplopia, who knows what. But 29 of those 70 had no clinical signs whatsoever, according to them. And of those 29, 10% had a stroke, is what they, they claim. I have no idea why you would work up somebody who says, I have vertigo and has no clinical sign. I have no idea why you'd work something like that up. Again, they don't detail that. They basically then conclude that MRI is an important tool for the diagnosis of stroke in patients with vertigo. Now, I'm not going to disagree with that. Of course, MRI is an important tool. In the, but who needs it? Yeah, right. It's like, but among patients who you don't understand the cause of vertigo. And frankly, I mean, when I think about my own practice, of the people that I MRI from the ER, I would not be surprised if more than 30% of them have a stroke because I'm like truly, you know, those are patients that I'm worried about. They're, you know, there's something that happens, but I'd like to believe that the ones that I sent home saying it's, you know, vestibular neuronitis or labyrinthitis or BPPV or whatever didn't have a stroke. And they just, I don't think this gets us anywhere in terms of understanding how many of those cases actually had a stroke. Those ones that you really thought were benign had a stroke because this methodology is just too poor. Now, so, so far, all I've done is bagged on the thing, right? So what, are, what is the nugget that I think we can take out of it and make it worth listening to? Well, first is don't believe these numbers. If someone says 30% of patients with you know, vertigo that you don't suspect have a stroke, have a stroke, that, that's nuts. But the other part of it is that 62 of those 70 patients who got an MRI and had vertigo also got a CT scan, okay? And so 
only three of those CT scans demonstrated a stroke. Okay. So at a minimum, there would have to have been at least 15 strokes among those 62 patients, just by the way the the numbers work out. And only three of them were detected by the CT scan. So this does affirm, it sort of inadvertently does confirm that if you're actually concerned about a stroke, yeah, don't get a CT. you cannot do a CT scan and leave it at that. You could do a CT scan and maybe it takes a day to get an MRI. You know, you don't want to sit on a bleed or something like that. That's totally fine, but you can't stop there if, the, if you're actually worried about a stroke. And I think that's the only take home that we really have. It's something we already knew, but it sort of tells you just how poor CTs are at detecting these strokes, at best 20% sensitive. Edit this commentary. This study claims to show that 32% of patients with acute vertigo have an acute stroke, including 10% of those with acute vertigo who do not have clinical signs. The study has severe methodologic problems that make these results almost certainly gross overestimates. On the other hand, it is noteworthy that most strokes seen on MRI were not seen on corresponding CT scans. Abstract number 11. Return encounters in ED patients treated with phenobarb versus benzos for alcohol withdrawal. This is by Lieben et al. from the Journal of Medical Toxicology. Now, alcohol withdrawal is a common and potentially life-threatening complication of chronic alcohol use. And for most of us, I think benzodiazepines make up the first, second, maybe even the third line of therapy. But we at LACUSC... We need fourth and fifth lines. We, need, we know something about this, right? As, we, as many people, you've probably heard other people on the MRAP program say, we truly are a center of excellence at this. And I was kind of thinking about that. Like, what does that mean? That We always say that a little bit glib, you know, but I was thinking might be worth putting it in context for a second, right? Because, you know, both I'm Mike listening. and I, both Mike and I have worked at many community hospitals outside of our academic job. And I know that if I was to put down some of the orders that we put down routinely for alcohol withdrawal patients in our ED, nurses at community sites would flip out. Yeah, they would would, would put a patient safety network. uh, They would refuse. So I'm going to ask you this, Mike. Yes. In a bolus, Mm -hmm. if you can remember, what's the most Ativan you've ever given to an alcohol withdrawal? Single bolus at county. Single bolus? At least 16 milligrams, at mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. I'm That's... not sure I've ever bumped up to 32, but I, I know I've given 16. And I've given that to awake patients. I mean, non-intubated. Yes. I, so I have done 32. Okay. I know I have done it at yeah. least once. Yeah. But both of those numbers, I think to a lot of people listening, are just going to be like a yeah. mind-boggling number. Like yeah. you said, they're not into, they're wide awake and they are wide awake afterwards. afterwards. And you're like, yeah. now what do I give next? That's why you're saying. Because I can remember one time, like when I was at a Kaiser Hospital, I think I was a resident at the time. That was like many years ago. And I suggested two of IV Ativan for somebody. <laughs> and they were like, oh, you get the crash card. And but maybe it was four or something. Yeah. But this 32, that is something we actually do. Yeah. So we, Mike and I, we know a little something about alcohol withdrawal. Okay. But we also use a lot of phenobarb we do. at LACUSC a lot. And the national experience with phenobarb, I think, grew in 2017 because there was a benzodiazepine shortage. So other EDs started using phenobarb as well. Studies that compare the two in terms of efficacy and safety have yielded largely mixed results, but likely this is due to the fact that they are essentially all observational studies with significant confounding, 
right? And Mike and I always say, why don't I do a trial on this and sort this out? I looked at clinicaltrials.gov and there is a trial currently registered on there. It's of 2019 where they say they're doing a randomized control trial. You know, just because it's on there doesn't mean it's going to happen. But someone recently, maybe after listening to EMA, thought about it and is doing it. So this one is also not a trial, but they're looking at the topic from a different viewpoint. So in this retrospective study conducted at UCSF with a lot of friendly faces on this author list, including Ralph Wang. I don't know if you know Ralph. Hello, Ralph, if you're listening. The authors look at the differences. And if you're not, come on, man. Seriously. Yeah. Pay pay the money. Get (laughs) on board. All right. You work at UCSF, for God's sake. So the authors look at the differences in return visits among patients with alcohol withdrawal discharged from the ED based on the medications they receive. This is a consecutive sample of adult patients with an ED discharge diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. Their primary outcome was ED return visit within three days. And they use something they have up there called the Care Everywhere system. You ever heard of this thing? Uh, I haven't heard of it as called as the care everywhere, but I'm aware that they, in San Francisco, they yeah. have this system that allows them to track ED visits across the That's right. It's the, the region. City. It's a yeah, regional re- it's look. It's beyond the city. Yeah. That's right. It's 12 emergency departments. Twelve. It's actually 12 healthcare organizations. So they get like a pretty good chunk of the area, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They classified index ED visits into three treatment categories, benzos only, phenobarb only, or combination therapy with both phenobarb and benzos. Over about a three-year period, they identified 470 ED visits from 285 unique patients. Benzos alone were used in 235 visits, phenobarb alone in 133 visits, and combination therapy in 102. In terms of clinical characteristics, like heart rate, blood pressure, etc., the groups looked the same, so it didn't look like one was particularly much sicker than the other. And they sort of also looked at things like past history of DTs and admissions to some other proxy for you know, whether this was a really sick alcohol withdrawal patient or not, also looked to be about the same between the three groups. How many? No, but this is a really seems like a small number to me. 500? Doesn't that seem like a small number across it? Maybe discharged, yeah. you know, maybe because the rest of them they admitted or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So in case you were curious, chlorodiazepoxide, Librium, and lorazepam were the most commonly used benzodiazepines with diazepam sort of bringing up the third position. For the primary outcome, 25% of the benzodiazepine group had a return visit within three days compared with 10% of phenobarb monotherapy and 13% of the combination, and that did reach some statistical significance. They did a lot of pretty complex data analyses here, including running a multivariate model, a sensitivity analysis. They did a lot of stuff, and this top-line finding didn't change. It looked like if you got phenobarb either in isolation or as monotherapy, you had lower chance of returning to the ED within three days. They look at a lot more outcomes and stuff, but that's kind of the big one. That's the one we're highlighting here. Also, one more thing. They did present dosing information, and this is a little bit important. If you converted everything to lorazepam equivalents, and I'm not exactly sure what the, you know, how you do that, you convert the barbiturate to benzodiazepine equivalent, it looked like whether you got phenobarb in isolation or in combination, you got a lot more benzodiazepine equivalents. You got a lot more medication. I see. Right, if you want to think about it that way. So that sort of brings us then to the limitations, right? It's not a trial. 
And they did do some adjustments and ran a model and stuff like that, but it is still possible that some unmeasured variable made the groups different and why some got phenobarb and some got benzodiazepine. Yeah, that's probably true. I got to say, though, I would have guessed that the bounce back rate would be higher for the combined benzo and phenobarb group based on confounding because like, oh, this is someone who needs both drugs or something like that. But yeah, obviously that's not the case. Yes, that's true. They don't take into account possible discharge medications. So if they got, you know, maybe with one group, you're more likely to give them Librium when they left or something like that. Another group, or referral for treatment. Like if they got sent to some kind of sobering center, that's not in there. And of course, patients may have presented to an ED outside of their care everywhere system or may have presented under a different name too, right? Come in sort of as a John Doe and they don't really identify so there are some limitations here. Sure, but there's no here. reason to think that would vary by how you were treated. There is not. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So there's some limit, but I mean, in terms of thinking about the rates sure. overall, the bounce back rates. Fair. But, you know, this is pretty cool. I, I, I think for me, I, I don't, they're definitely not saying, hey, get on, use benzodiazepines. In fact, I think they're pretty cautious with their results. They're, I'm sorry, phenobarb. They're like, hey, we need a trial here to really understand this, but this is what we're seeing in our one center experience. And I think there's probably a lot of people out there in the community who aren't using phenobarb or have never used right. it, right? So if nothing else, this paper is sort of a reminder that it's out there. It is a line. It is like an agent we can use for these patients, particularly if you're kind of getting to that point of benzos where you're like, this is starting to feel like a lot of benzodiazepines. Try something different. Try phenobarb. I think it's a good reminder. Edit this commentary. In this observational cohort study, the authors found that patients with alcohol withdrawal who got phenobarbital either as solo therapy or in combination with benzodiazepines were less likely to have a return ED visit within three days when compared to patients treated with benzodiazepines alone. We are left to wonder if this is a phenobarbital effect or simply a more aggressive treatment effect, which led to their findings. A trial is definitely needed to sort this out but this is a nice reminder that phenobarb is an option for patients with alcohol withdrawal in the ED. Abstract number 12, effect of pain reprocessing therapy versus placebo in usual care for patients with chronic back pain, a randomized clinical trial by Ashar et al. And this is in JAMA Psychiatry. I'll try to do this one quick, not as a quick take, but quickly because applicability in emergency medicine may not be completely evident. But Just answer me a question up front. Is this hypnosis? Is this like hypnotherapy? <laughs> it's not. Pain reprocessing? Pain re it's that, and that's what I want to talk about. So the introduction to this paper is like super fascinating. It really is. The authors discuss in some, some great detail, really, issues with how chronic pain is maladaptive. They basically say that our brains are mostly organized and evolved to detect pain is something that predicts the risk of tissue damage. Okay, makes sense. You put your hand on the stove. You're like, ah, it hurts. Move your hand. Okay, so when it hurts, you're, you should be worried. You should stop doing what you're doing. You should protect the area, right? In modern medical context, that also means maybe you should go to a doctor and get checked out to see, like, can they fix something about it, right? But this becomes very problematic when the pain becomes chronic. Chronic pain is actually not closely associated with what they call nociception or the detection of a painful stim an actually painful stimulus and or tissue damage, but with other brain systems that are like heavily affected by mood and all sorts of other afferent innervations, but not tissue damage. The problem is that our brains feel it the same way. They feel it the same way and they react the same. 
They avoid stressing the area. They try to minimize tissue damage and they try to get the back surgery to fix their back problem to prevent ongoing tissue damage. The net effect is that we end up avoidant creatures who are depressed and full of back scars. What we need is to reprogram what chronic pain means to us. It means you've got a messed up brain, not a messed up back. That's the just general idea here. And that's what this pain reprocessing therapy is. The therapy trains the person to experience chronic pain as a false alarm. You're like, oh, my back hurts so bad. Okay, well, check it out. Can you still move your feet? Can you still, you know, do whatever? Then it's, it's not, that's not a problem. You know, can you still pee? Can you still poop? It's not a problem. Just chill out, try to move away from it. So it's actually very non-hypnotic in the sense that it's very much about teaching them this process and not trying to like, you know, deeply seed some, something. So in this, now I'll get to the point of the study, which goes pretty quick. They did a three-armed RCT of pain reprocessing therapy, usual care, or placebo. And this wasn't, and yeah, I'll talk about that because it's like usual care or placebo. And just for the record, it wasn't done in the ED. They recruited these people from like the community, putting up flyers. Do you have chronic back pain? Come to our thing. And it was done in, in Colorado. The pain reprocessing therapy group got eight telehealth sessions over four weeks to do this therapy. The placebo group got a lecture about placebo effect, saying how placebo effect makes it better. And then they did a trigger point injection on them, which I find offensive because I don't think trigger points are placebo. But nonetheless, that's that's what they put in there. That's the placebo group. And then they did the usual care group that just got whatever their doctor was doing. Couldn't they have done some arm as like sort of a sham pain reprocessing session? You know what I mean? Still gave them eight telehealth visits, but did something else. And we've seen that in some other things where they're like, they just talk generally about back, back, how your back is, you know, bones and ligaments. Wouldn't that have been a better comparator? I don't know, man. You know, probably, but whatever. Or hypnosis. (laughs) Right, exactly. The primary outcome was average pain after one month of this therapy. And in addition, they followed these patients out up to one year. And what that means is in the week that they did the assessment, they basically had them do a pain journal and said, like, what's your pain at time A, time B? And they do an average, whatever. They did all sorts of other things about their mood and their disability index and other stuff that we like. And then interestingly, although not really that relevant for us, they did functional MRI on all these patients a year later to see like how their brains had like changed in response to, you know, painful stimuli and such. 151 patients randomized, 40 years old, 55% women, almost all of them were white. The results massively favored this pain reprocessing therapy over placebo and usual care. The average pain in the PRT group, pain reprocessing therapy group was one, right? The average pain in the placebo group was three, and the average pain in the usual care group was over th- was like three and a half. Disability and mood anxiety scores followed the same general trend. And this effect, interestingly, was maintained for the full year of follow-up, almost at the same levels that it had this big effect that was sustained. Again, there were all these changes on functional MRI that they did on these people. And they go into detail, show pictures of it all. And there's like, yeah, see, the pain center, it looks better in this one. I have no idea if that's true, but there were actual changes to the patient's brain that occurred as a consequence of this. So, you know, this is unlikely to change one's clinical practice, and I'm not advocating for sending everyone to the ED with back pain for this, what I still think is experimental therapy with not, as Sanjay alluded to, not the world's best controls and all that kind of stuff. A lot of this may have been due to the fact that they got eight sessions, you know, like you said, 
And so I don't really know. But I think it's it's worth noting that this is a rare example of something that actually has helped patients with chronic back pain and does not involve chronic opioid use. So, you know, I plan on trying to incorporate this into my counseling sessions and discussion with patients a little bit at this point. And I overall, I just thought, you know, a lot of us suffer from chronic pain. We obviously treat a lot of patients with chronic pain. And understanding this maybe helps us empathize, be better doctors, or at least take care of ourselves better. Well, honestly, I think it's pretty cool. Like, you know, there's just, because like you said, chronic back pain is very difficult to treat. So if there's anything out there, yeah. there's some new thing, maybe it works, it's probably worth knowing about. But am I wrong in saying that this also shows that your trigger point injection is not just a placebo? It does. You're right. I didn't emphasize but it outperformed usual, usual care. care. And that's so, telling them it doesn't do so anything. I'm we told them it doesn't work. Yeah. We did it. And it's still I'm better surprised than usual that for care. Mike Menchin, that wasn't the <laughs> top line finding. It's a good point. Editor's commentary. This study demonstrates that pain reprocessing therapy or training patients with chronic low back pain that pain is not associated with ongoing tissue destruction is associated with less perceived pain and disability for a year. Though the findings should be considered preliminary and in need of validation, this offers a new line of therapy and counseling to consider for patients suffering from this common chronic condition. Abstract number 13. Acute myocarditis following COVID-19 mRNA vaccination in adults age 18 years or older. This is by Simone et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine. So, in the race to vaccinate the population, the world's population against COVID-19, as healthcare providers, I think we're often asked to comment on potential risks of getting the shot, right? And one of those that's commonly discussed is this myocarditis, and it's kind of a new one, a new thing to be afraid of. And as we vaccinate more people, we're going to get more data on the real incidence of this adverse event. So this is a Kaiser study where the authors provide data from over 2 million adult patients who received at least one dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna mRNA vaccine between December 2020 and July 2021. To identify possible cases of myocarditis, they looked at reports from clinicians to their sort of internal immunization practice committee. They're sort of told, if you have some bad thing, send it in. Sounds like they said their docs were pretty good at doing this and also looked at the medical record for these patients for 10 days after they got the injection, which is that myocarditis is supposed to occur pretty quick when it occurs. All cases were adjudicated by at least two cardiologists. They had data from almost 2.4 million Kaiser members, split surprisingly almost exactly 50-50 between getting Pfizer or getting Moderna. 54% female, about 30% white, a median age of 40 years, with 35% of them being less than 40 years, like that younger kind of cohort where everybody's talking about. And almost all of them, about 95%, had two doses. So it wasn't really just the first dose. They also had a control group of about 1.5 million patients, who they called the unexposed groups. They did not get vaccinated, with a median age of 39 years, 53% of them being less than 40 years. They were a little bit younger overall than the vaccinated group, otherwise pretty similar demographic characteristics. There were 15 cases of confirmed myocarditis in the vaccinated group, two after the first dose and 13 after the second, for an observed incidence of 
eight cases per million first doses and 5.8 cases per million second doses. That's pretty rare. Well, if you extrapolate that to the whole country, I mean, that's like several hundred cases. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 800,000 people are dead of COVID. As of our recording, as of your listening, I shudder at the thought. All of them were men. No women got this. And the average age was 25 years. And this is what people are saying. Young men getting this myocarditis. Among unexposed individuals, there were 75 cases of myocarditis during the study period, split more evenly between men and women. So an incidence rate here, they calculate out to be 2.2 cases per 1 million patients. Of the vaccinated patients with confirmed myocarditis, symptoms resolved with conservative management in all cases, just NSAIDs, none of them went to the ICU or anything like that. Now, although limited by an observational design, the possibility for a more aggressive workup of young patients with chest pain post-vaccination, right? We'd all heard about this. You might be more likely to send a trope. Yeah, there's no question that this is is biased towards finding more myocarditis in the vaccinated group because people are on the lookout for it. That's right, right? There is possible also that patients may have been seen outside the Kaiser system. But this is another paper showing the risk of post-vaccine myocarditis is extremely rare. It could be even lower than the risk of COVID-associated myocarditis. I'm sure it is. <laughs> There's no comment on that here, yeah. but another thing to bear in mind yeah. when talking to people. Well, who we ask. know that COVID causes myocarditis. That is a fact. That is probably why if the vaccine causes myocarditis, it causes it because it's somewhat similar to that. So, you know, to me, I'm still in this like, look, you're going to get COVID or you're going to get vaccinated. That's, those are your choices on this earth these days. And we know one causes myocarditis, COVID. We're not sure about the other one. I know what I'm taking. Editor's commentary. In this research letter, the authors report an extremely low rate of post-vaccination myocarditis within the Kaiser healthcare system. Patients were all young males So this population may warrant special attention, but all cases were self-limited and benign. Abstract number 14, association of tramadol versus coding prescription dispensation with mortality and other adverse clinical outcomes. This is by Shi et al. and JAMA. So tramadol, also known as Ultram, has long been considered a benign opioid or actually, in some circumstances, people just have like ignored or don't even really consider it an opioid at all. It's a wildly popular drug. It's an international bestseller. And in the U.S., it's currently a Schedule IV drug, indicating like low abuse potential as opposed to most opioids, like hydrocodone or whatever, that are Schedule II. I know this categorization drives toxicologists nuts. Because it is an opioid. It just, that's what it is. It's a synthetic opioid. It's, it's active metabolite, binds mu receptors, just like other stuff. And so it's an opioid. That's one thing. But on top of that, it has this um, serotonergic property. I think it acts somewhat like an SSRI. So in toxicology, it has not only some of the properties of opioids, but also has this additional toxic sort of thing with the, the serotonergic issue. So toxicologists hate this drug. That has been my experience. When you bring it up to them, they just they get pissed. It's like you in retrospective designs. Apparently, these authors are toxicologists because <laughs> they hate it too. So what they just sought to determine is at a population level, if 
tramadol is associated with similar or more adverse events than the pure opioid codeine. The authors used an electronic health database in Spain to identify people with new prescriptions for tramadol and codeine and compare a variety of clinical outcome between these two populations. To qualify, subjects had to be in this data system. And it's like one of these big data systems, you know, that encompasses millions and millions of people. But they had to be in the data system for more than one year with no evidence of opioid prescribing for at least one year, for at least one year prior to the index prescription. And then they had to remain in the database for at least a year following that index prescription. And the index prescription had to be either of tramadol or codeine. It's interesting to say that the, you know, they used codeine. We don't use codeine that much in the United States, so that might create some weird, you know, sort of, if we were doing it here, that'd be kind of a weird patient population. But the authors contend that codeine's like the number one seller over there. It's their hydrocodone. So it makes sense to use codeine, at least from you know, evaluating that population. The authors then follow them for this year, and they look at all-cause mortality among this cohort and many other things that we'll get into in a sec. They adjust for a host of observable conditions and demographic features like age, gender, the reason for getting the prescription in the first place, using propensity score analysis. They ended up with 370,000 patients over a 10-year study period from 2007 to 2017. Just over half of the patients were female, and the most common indication for either of these drugs was back pain. Co-prescribing with benzodiazepines was relatively common at 27%. I'm just trying to set up the stage that this actually sounds like a, you know, a decently problematic study cohort if that many people were getting concurrent benzodiazepines. The results do not look good for tramadol. All-cause mortality was 13 per 1,000 patient years in the tramadol group versus 5.6 for the codeine group with a hazard ratio of uh, 2.31, which reaches you know, statistical significance in this big population-based study. Cardiovascular events, fall and fractures were more common in the tramadol users, and this was true among basically every subgroup of patients, men versus women, different indications, different patient ages, etc. Everything favored codeine. Interestingly, even the probability of developing a diagnosis of opioid dependence was higher for tramadol users than for people who were prescribed codeine. There are always limitations to this type of analysis, this type of population-based thing. Most importantly, the possibility of omitted variable bias or confounding by indication. For example, codeine is maybe commonly used for cough suppression, right? So that's like not really fair. They do an analysis where they eliminate everybody who had any diagnosis of cough and the results hold the same. But I think ultimately, even if we say, you know, this is limited, maybe because of this codeine cough thing or some other thing, this is biased towards finding something for tramadol. At least we can know there's no indication that tramadol is safer than codeine here. There's nothing at all. If anything, it shows that it's much more likely associated with all-cause mortality. And this idea that it's this safe non-opioid drug is false on both fronts. It's both non-safe and it is an opioid. Editor's commentary. This large database-driven study from Spain shows that patients with new prescriptions of tramadol have higher all-cause mortality and other adverse outcomes than similar patients prescribed codeine. Clinicians should be aware that tramadol is an opioid with a similar or worse safety profile compared with other medium-potency opioids. 
quick take. Abstract number 15. Trends in management of simple febrile seizures at U.S. Children's Hospitals, and this is by Raghavan et al. from Pediatrics. This one is a quick take. Simple febrile seizures affect somewhere between 2 and 5% of kids, and all once thought to be sort of a harbinger for very serious invasive disease, the widespread adoption of vaccination has dramatically decreased the incidence of bacterial meningitis. In 2011, the American Academy of Pediatrics revised their guidelines for the management of simple febrile seizure to drop the LP for the vast majority of cases, specifically in kids less than 12 months. This is a pretty straightforward before and after study from the Pediatric Health Information System database with data coming from almost 50 hospitals over a 15-year study period between 2005 and 2019. Identified 142,000 kids with simple febrile seizures and all data needed for analysis. The median age was 20.8 months, 42% female, and 35% of the kids presented in the time before the guideline changed and 65% in the time after. There was no significant demographic differences between the two study periods. The rate of lumbar puncture dropped from 11.6% in 2005 to 0.6% in 2019, with the largest drop seen in kids aged 6 to 12 months. And interestingly, They have a lot of graphs in this paper, and if you look at the graphs, it's not like it's kind of flat and then 2011 hits and there's a big drop. It's actually kind of trending down in the years before 2011 as well. People were getting wise. Yeah, they're saying that these were all academic centers, kind of pediatric EDs at the forefront, so people knew this was coming before it actually came. They give a lot of other interesting things here. The rate of head CTs dropped from 10.6% in 2005 to 1.6% in 2019. The rate of CBCs dropped from just under 40% in 2005 to just over 10% in 2019, which actually is still a little bit high. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised by that. The admission rate dropped from about 20% to 5%. The use of IV antibiotics dropped from 17.7% to 3.3%. And importantly, there was no difference in the rate of delayed bacterial meningitis between the two time periods. So this is not like groundbreaking, cutting-edge research. This is more of like a feel-good paper for our specialty, right? We know that this incidence of bacterial meningitis is way on the decline. I think it's just saying, hey, we are doing a good job here. There's a little bit room for improvement still. The AAP does not recommend getting CBCs in these simple febrile seizure patients. I'm usually not doing it. You know, they kind of recommend just doing a workup appropriate for the fever or whatever it is. But we're not missing any cases of meningitis. Feel good paper of the month. We're doing a good job. Editor's commentary. In this time series analysis, the authors report that for patients with simple febrile seizures, we have dramatically decreased our testing, antibiotics, and admissions over the last 15 years without missing cases of bacterial meningitis. In the vast majority of cases, we should look for a source of the fever in the same manner in which we would if the case had presented without the febrile seizure and then stop there. This approach is supported by national professional organizations and just makes sense. Quick take. Abstract number 16, and this is a quick take. It's Diltiazem versus Metoprolol for the Management of Atrial Fibrillation, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this is a generations-old question. 
Which rate-lowering agent is best for rapid response atrial fibrillation, DILT or metoprolol? Both selectively block the AV node and both have slightly different safety profiles. This is a systemic review and meta-analysis of the trials available on this topic. So the authors, you know, did their usual scrubbing and looking under the corners to find the world's literature on this, and they found three trials that compared these agents head-to-head. The most recent was from 2015, and the others were from 2004 and 2009, respectively. Combined, these trials involve a whopping 150 patients. 150 million patients. Yes, right. Because I, again, I'm sure everybody out there is listening and going, I have seen 150 patients with rapid response. Why don't we have this, this trial? Year. Why I, can't somebody do this one? I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of it probably has to do with exclusion criteria and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of tricky. I feel like you could get more than 50 Yeah, all these trials. Because nobody cares. Because their diltiazem and metoprolol are both generic. You know what? People study a lot of things nobody cares about. <laughs> Give me that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Each of these trials was estimated to be moderate risk of bias caused by the analytic method used. The doses of the drugs were a little bit different in each of the trials, but generally were about 0.25 milligrams per kilogram of diltiazem and 0.15 milligram per kilogram of metoprolol, very reasonable and standard dosing. All three trials favored diltiazem in in terms of speed of heart rate lowering. Pooled together, the hazard ratio for achieving a normalized heart rate was 4.6 favoring diltiazem, meaning that diltiazem had about 4.6 higher odds of heart rate normalization at any given time compared with metoprolol. The authors produce a survival curve that gives this a little bit more meaning and shows that at 22 and a half minutes, 50% of the diltiazem group had normalized heart rates compared with only about 20% of the metoprolol group. In terms of safety, Blood pressure was slightly lower after administration of either agent at 15 minutes. It dropped by an average of 20 millimeters of mercury systolic blood pressure, but that didn't vary between the agents. Both of them dropped it a little bit, none more than the other. There are no formal strong recommendations from any guideline group favoring one agent over the other, but this is consistent with my clinical practice where I use diltiazem preferentially over metoprolol. Having said that, The overall strength of the evidence and the fact that it is consistent with my clinical practice is weak and we'll really need some trials, as Sanjay's already alluded to, to sort this out for real. commentary. This systematic review and meta-analysis shows that diltiazem improved heart rate faster than metoprolol for patients with rapid response atrial fibrillation. The data are from three small trials of varying quality and so should be taken as informative but hardly practice-changing. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Empowering Patients. Simplifying Discharge Instructions. This is by Desai et al. from BMJ Open Quality. So the comprehension of discharge instructions is important. It has been shown to improve patient outcomes, prevent unnecessary returns to the ED, but previous studies have shown that over three-quarters of patients do not understand at least one domain of their aftercare instructions. This deficit is likely due to a combination of factors, things like limited health literacy, a language barrier, you know, perhaps printed in something they can't even read, not enough time to sort of talk to the patient to explain those things and review the key elements, and 
quite frankly, the sheer volume of papers that traditionally print out in this huge packet that we give patients. It's got to be like, you know. Right, you have 30 pages. Yeah, how could you possibly find the important stuff in there? So to tackle this issue, the authors of this paper performed a qualitative and quantitative assessments of patients and providers about the discharge process with a focus on aftercare instructions and what were the most common domains at their sort of place where information was lost. They then used the findings from this to create a one-page simplified information sheet they called the SIP, Simplified Information Page. And they have it in the paper too. It kind of has big font, so it's easy to read. It's written at a very basic level, and it has sections with diagnosis, medications, and in the medication, it basically says dose, how long do you take this, and what's it for? It has follow-up information, and then return precautions. So it's just those sections, and they basically just took this thing and slapped it right on the top of that huge packet of papers. So a huge packet plus one. Plus one. This document was actually tested and revised in multiple rounds and iterations, taking the patient's opinions into considerations. They really went through a pretty rigorous method to develop this thing. Now, the paper itself here is a quality improvement report. So when you're reading through it, it's a little bit hard to follow because they don't use sort of the traditional research paper headings and subheadings. There's no methods section, right? It's just sort of like, a narrative description of everything they did with results kind of peppered in the middle of it. In the pre-phase of their study, before using the SIP, among 50 patients that they evaluated for knowledge comprehension of their discharge instructions, they found that none of them, zero out of 50, had full comprehension of their ED visit and post-ED care instructions. The two lowest areas of comprehension being reasons to return to the ED and information about their medications, both frequency and duration. Well, that's discouraging. Yeah. <laughs> the reason but, they don't know when to come back to the But ER. that's, I mean, that's no, what we've seen in other studies, I know, I know. you know? So for that, that's why they made the SIP, their you'd, SIP, the you'd way love they them did. to not even know the diagnosis. That'd be okay, as long as you knew what to come back for. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't know it. So they rated the level of comprehension on a six-point scale. That was a little bit weird to sort of follow to. Basically, in the pre-phase, Knowledge or comprehension was observed to be at a 4.5. Okay, then they did this SIP. It looks like they probably interviewed a convenient sample of patients in the post phase as well. It's hard to tell. 118 patients, average comprehension increased to 5.5. So, you know, went up a little bit, right? In the qualitative analysis, this is a really long paper. So they did one of those things I always like to see. They give quotes from the patients, like a bunch of them, a bunch of quotes about this SIP. And so some of the the ones I thought were more interesting were, this is more helpful than looking through all the paperwork. Those end up in the trash. Second one being, I will put this on my fridge as a reminder, which I thought was kind of cool. They did make it look nice too, with like red colors and things like that. One thing worth noting is that the SIP was not pre-printed out or something like that by the EMR, your discharge instructions. It looks like it was filled out in real time with the patient using sort of a teach-back method. So somebody sat there and went through everything, and they filled it out together, like the patient and whoever this person was, right? Because of that, it's really hard to know if any of this increased knowledge, and they also report increased satisfaction or a few other things, was really the SIP 
or just the teach back, like that moment of being able to sit there with somebody and go through it. Another major limitation is we don't know anything about the sampling method. It is possible that they chose patients with some bias built in to support their desired conclusions. Maybe at the beginning, they picked some really complicated cases with hard-to-follow discharge instructions, and they picked either case. Also, would have been nice to see sort of a post-discharge assessment of these patients, to see if the SIP actually caused some of this comprehension to stick, because that's where it seems to me like it might have some benefit, like they can actually look at it on their fridge or whatever. So three or four days later, they might be like, no, no, it's right here. It's easy to access. I know exactly what it is. So, Or that it was simple enough to understand in the beginning that it just, they can retain it. That's exactly right. Instead but, of like being bombarded with hundreds of things that, you know, like. So there's no doubt we can all agree this is an issue, right? And we might doubt the magnitude of the findings here, but the effort should be applauded. This is another one of those where it's like a QI project. They tackled it locally. They not only instituted it where they were, but then took the time to write it up and publish it in a peer-reviewed paper. Kudos to the authors. This is a cool solution to an everyman kind of a problem. Editor's commentary. In this QI effort turned publication, the authors tackle the real problem of lack of comprehension of ED discharge instructions by going through a rigorous development and testing process to create a one-page, easy-to-read form that is filled out in real time and put on top of the stack of discharge papers. This is a cool local solution to an international problem. Hard to know if it was the form itself or the real-time teachback that improved comprehension, but regardless, the effort by the authors should be applauded. Abstract number 18, assessment of discordance between physicians and family members regarding prognosis in patients with severe acute brain injury. This is by Kiker et al. and JAMA Network Open. This is an interesting article giving us estimates of how different patients' families estimate their loved one's prognosis following severe brain injury compared with their doctors. What's really novel in this study is that the authors attempt to distinguish between how much of any difference is attributable to miscommunication versus what they call optimistic belief bias. And finally, they look at some demographic features and how that actually influences this. And Sanjay is looking at me quizzically, and I'll walk through all this stuff. The study itself was a major undertaking. Unfortunately, it's not very ED-focused, but I still think there's stuff in here. They enrolled patients in the ICU at the University of Washington who had acute neurologic damage on hospital day two. So they let the first 24 hours sort of pass. And the patients could have acute neurologic damage from any cause. It could have been a stroke, trauma, ischemic, hypoxemic, encephalopathy, etc. The key is they had to have a GCS less than 12. And I think they're in the ICU. I think their GCSs were really low, but they don't really report that very well. They then asked the patient's surrogate decision makers, whoever's interacting with the healthcare system, three basic questions. One, they asked them, how likely is it, in your opinion, that your loved one will recover to be independent? Understand that? Then they asked them the second question is probably the hardest one, which is, how likely would your doctor say your loved one's chance of becoming independent were, right? You'd like to think that those numbers would be the same. Like, I think it's 30% because my doctor said it was 30%, you know, something like that. Um, But in reality, they were probably more, they're like, my doctor said 30, but I got my thing and it's going to be 80. I'm quite sure. And that's optimistic bias, 
right? They acknowledge that the doctor said it was lower or the doctor thinks it's lower, but my spouse or my child or father or whatever is stronger. You know, he's yeah. better. And so that's optimistic bias. I think, I think I can say with a lot of certainty that optimistic bias is something you will never be accused of <laughs> Probably your not. entire life. That's that's a that hundred thus hundred percent certainty. Right. But I, and I had this sort of written out differently, but I'll go there. I do want to say that that's the optimistic bias. Miscommunication would be something slightly different. That would be like I think it's the chance of him improving is fifty percent. His doctor would think it's fifty percent. But then when you ask the doctor, he's like, I said five percent. You know, that's just miscommunication, not optimistic bias. And so that's what they did is they then asked the doctor the following questions, which is, you know, one, what is the patient's chance of recovery to independence? And two, how would you rate the family understanding of the prognosis? So they actually asked them that. And then when they could, they actually asked the treating nurse as well. And they only asked them the last question, which is, how would you rate the family's understanding of what's going on here or what the prognosis is? They didn't ask the nurse to estimate the prognosis itself. The analysis is a bit complicated. And again, they, they defined a discordance as the family estimating the prognosis more than 20% different from what the doctor said, not, not what they thought the doctor was. And they, again, they called it optimistic bias if that was driven by their belief that the doctor had a lower estimate than, than what they believe. And they called it misunderstanding if they have the same estimate as their doctor and the doctor just had a totally different you know, estimate. Key findings. So they had 193 doctor family dyads that they enrolled. The mean age of the patient was 57. Most of the patients were men, but most of the family members were women. 75% were white. Discordance dominates. 61% of the time, there was a greater than 20% prognostic discordance. Not surprisingly, the huge majority of the time, 90%, the families estimated the prognosis much higher than the physician's estimate of the prognosis. Optimistic belief difference occurred about 50% of the time. So a lot of it was driven by like, that doctor said this, but 40% of the time that there was a discordance, it was driven by just straight misunderstanding. Interestingly, a couple other interesting notes, patients in minority groups were much more likely to have discordant beliefs. The odds ratio for that was three times higher. Siblings and children of patients were much more likely to have discordant results than their uh, spouse. Probably because, you know, siblings and they're like, he's so strong and me, you know, and all that. And then spouses are like, he's not strong. <laughs> he's weak. That's, that's the problem. So anyway, but, so that part's not so, so interesting. But the interesting part about that minority group discrepancy, I thought was um, telling. Overall, I think that these data suggest that families are likely to have very disparate views of prognosis. Again, some of which is driven by a more optimistic assessment than what they think the physician assessment is, but a large of it's due to misunderstanding, which is exacerbated in minority populations. Some of this may explain families' reluctance to end or to have end-of-life discussions and you know, do you know, withdrawal of care kind of things, etc. So now, which group was right about prognosis? We don't actually know. I'm going to have to err on the side it was the physicians and have a better understanding of these things, but we don't know that for sure. It's possible that this optimistic bias was proven to be correct or accurate. Now, more importantly, what are we supposed to do about it? And I certainly don't have a clear understanding of what we're supposed to do about it from an ED perspective. 
I think probably the most important thing is just to understand that this is, you know, this tendency towards upwardly biased prognosis exists, and we should probably seek to minimize that misunderstanding from the misunderstanding part from the get-go. And what I think about is some of these studies we've done in the past, personally, where we've asked people like, what, you know, estimate something in numbers, and then you ask them to estimate something using qualitative terms like poor or good. And it's like all over the place. And what you mean as a doctor as good or poor or okay is way different than what patients mean by poor or good or okay. And it may be even further if they're from a minority group that where that meaning is really distorted. So we should probably try to be as specific as possible and avoid ambiguous terms like that. Obviously, we want to give people hope. But false hope is very painful when it fails and can have some downstream effects. So again, I don't have a prescription for how to do this other than to recognize that it's there. Misunderstanding drives a good chunk of it, but not all of it. And so we should do our part to be as clear as we can be, even in the face of fair amounts of uncertainty. You know, I think that's a really nice take-home message. And this in the ED, this is probably even more difficult because yes. there's like sort of a state of shock is largely the kind of an unplanned, like a code or something like that. I Whereas, wait till you know, hospital day yeah. two to let the dust settle Right. A so I'm saying for ED providers, yeah. like being clear is going to be even more difficult, mm-hmm. I think, just because the family member may not be really in a place to hear it no matter how clear you were. But thinking about this study, you know, when you said that they didn't ask uh, the nurse for their opinion of the prognosis. I'm kind of surprised because I think that would have been really interesting because, you know, in these ICU settings, you know, we've had family members personally in the ICU. Man, you know that nurse. You know, that nurse is there with your loved one, 12 hour shift, has really no other responsibilities. Seems like their impression of the prognosis would be really heavy in terms of shaping the family members, you know? Yeah, like, that's it, a good point. They did something that I, I just didn't go into. But that when they ask the nurse, you know, what's the family's prognosis? Because the nurse does know that family, you know? Yeah, yeah, really well. And they were like, when the nurse said the family's understanding of prognosis was not good, it was like crazy how much of these biases and how off they yeah. were. They could predict that really well. So again, if, if you're in that ICU kind of setting and you're like, you know, I don't know if the family's getting it, you know? You might want to just ask the nurse right off the bat. Yeah, do, I think that's think right. Do you think they get it or not? And if they say the nurse says no, then you, you got work to do, buddy. That makes sense you know? to me. Yeah. One other point, that was a great point, by the way, I'd bring up about this clarity in the ER, which is that I think when it's uncertain, we should acknowledge uncertainty and just say, I cannot clarify this right now. If I do, it'll just be make-believe numbers, gobbledygook. But if you give them anything that's just false, right, or is proven to be false, then they could latch on to that and it could affect things downstream. So I think I would, again, in that circumstance where you really just don't know, say, you know what we should do is we should just let the dust settle tonight, tomorrow, talk to their, their treating provider, and we'll use that as our baseline. Yeah, and I think that's fair because uh, remember we did a paper like a few months ago looking at the patients with traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. severe traumatic brain injury, and looking at those numbers of recovery, and they were way different than what I thought they would be as an emergency provider. So It's okay to recognize the limitations of what we don't know and to say, I don't know, we're doing the best we can. I think that's really good advice. Editor's commentary. This study of ICU patients with moderate to severe neurologic damage shows that patients' families most often overestimate the chance of their loved ones recovering to independence compared with their doctors. Some of this is due to optimistic bias in which families understand the physician's estimate but believe that estimate is too low. 
A large fraction, however, appears to be due to misunderstanding. Providers should be aware of this tendency and intervene to clarify prognosis throughout the medical encounter. Abstract number 19. The effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economics of U.S. emergency care. This is by Jesse Pines et al. from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So every single person listening to this podcast can attest to the fact that ED volumes went way down here in the U.S. during the early stages of the pandemic, basically sending shockwaves throughout our system. Caused some of us to question the security of our jobs moving forward. We had no idea if this was ever going to rebound and really freaked out the people who were looking for a job, right? Because at one point in time, it looked like our volumes were just dropped for who knows how long. Yeah, it may never recover. This volume drop was driven by lots of things, right? Stay-at-home orders, concerns by patients about personal safety. If I come to the ER, am I going to catch COVID? Fear the system was already completely overwhelmed and we think was largely seen for both high and low acuity patients, like there was a drop-off in both. Payment models for providers differ from group to group, but generally speaking, the economics of ED practice organizations depend directly on patient volumes, right? No patients, no money, and to a lesser degree on care complexity. We all felt it, but in this study, the author's quantify how visit numbers and case complexity changed during the COVID-19 pandemic and how this impacted the economics of EDs, ED clinicians, and their practice organizations. So this is observational data from January to September 2019 as sort of a reference point, and then January to September 2020 as the COVID pandemic period that they were reporting on. Kind of interesting it was January 2020 because it really didn't start until March, but yeah. whatever. 136 EDs from 18 states. Facilities included 40 small EDs, 56 medium EDs, 16 large uh, hospital-based EDs, and 24 freestanding EDs. Of the 104 hospital-based EDs, the small, medium, and large, 93% were non-academic community hospitals. Outcomes included visit numbers, visit complexity, which they sort of measured a proxy as RVUs per visit, as visit complexity, hospital admission rates, inpatient admissions and observation stays, clinical revenue, direct salary expenses for clinicians, clinician hours work, and clinician full-time equivalent. So this paper is really long, full of interesting information, if you are curious about sort of the magnitude of the impact of this kind of thing. Truthfully, it's worth a look. There are lots of week-by-week graphs labeled with events of interest, like placement of stay-at-home order, lifting of stay-at-home order, and then you can just sort of follow these trends, which are crazy to see like the steep drop and kind of watch when they start to rebound and things like that. So like I said, there's a lot. I kind of just picked out a couple of highlights to discuss. So geriatric, which they defined as age over 65, adult and pediatric visits, declined by 43%, 40%, and 73%, respectively, when compared with those same periods in 2019. They sort of calculate these 2020-2019 visit ratios. And like I said, all the details are in the graphs here. There is a rapid and sharp drop in March with a gradual upswing beginning in August, but never getting back to pre-pandemic levels. Now, that's during this study period. I know those of us practicing now are feeling you know, a little bit different. We're kind of getting back to normal. 
But during the study period, they never got back with pediatric volumes still at less than half where they should have been looking at the ratios by the end of the study period. The 2020-2019 ratio of RVUs per visit increased slightly, right? Patients were a little bit sicker, about 10% overall. We build them more at least. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. In April, and then started to level off by August. Admission rates also increased early, rose by a proportionate 32%, and then started to flatten out in August. Decline, actually, not flatten out. Revenue ratios fell sharply to 0.6, like sort of looking at that ratio in April, recovered to about 0.9 by the end. But the physician hour ratio, right, because we were like cutting shifts and things like that, also declined to 0.8% initially. The APP hour ratio declined to 0.6%. So we were really getting rid of APP shifts. The physician hour drop was not seen at freestanding and smaller EDs, you know, that probably didn't have room to drop. You got single coverage there, so you couldn't do it. But the APP drop at those places went down to a ratio of 0.3. Yeah, right. So they just got rid of all the APPs. So if you want to calculate, like I said, there's just so much in here. But if you want to use numbers and not ratios, you just like want to get sort of the, what am I talking about? How much might, what happened to me economically? What happened to our special taxes yet? What what happened? Clinical hours overall for both the physicians and APPs fell by 17% and compensation fell by 27%. So if you add those two great tastes that don't taste great together, that's a big hit, right? The hour drop and a compensation drop on top of it. So, you know, luckily, I think most places are sort of coming back, like we're getting back to where we used to be in terms of volumes and things. But I think the authors kind of wanted to document all this just to be like, hey, we need to think about our payment model. You know, this sort of uh, fee-for-service reimbursement with no floor, like nothing to protect us if ED volumes go down to zero, particularly when you have the double whammy of going, okay, we know nothing about this COVID. You know, you put on your N95, you go to work, you freak out, you're worried about bringing this stuff home to your family, and your compensation's going down, and your patients are going down. It's Well, it's an emergency-dependent disease. It's not like, you know, everybody stopped going to the emergency department because everybody got IBD and went to the IBD clinics. I mean, this isn't a, you needed maybe more than ever to have emergency department open because every other clinic was closed and the only place you could get stuff done was in hospitals, hospital-based emergency departments and hospital admissions. And yet, you know, we got crushed. You know, it's, it's, it's actually crazy. It's yeah. actually crazy. So they're kind of saying, you know, if there's a future shock like yeah. this, who knows if we'll survive it yeah. like, as a specialty. So I think this is a really interesting sort of thought piece get everybody sort of talking about like, what could, how could we change the way we get paid? And maybe this has to go up to, who knows what's going to come out of this. But it's nice, I think, to see it all documented very well. You know, Jesse Pines, he knows what he's doing. These methods are pretty solid. I believe his numbers, I believe his estimates, maybe they're underestimates, if anything, they sort of talk about that in the paper, but we made it. Let's prepare for the next shock. Edit this commentary. The authors from this paper give us some numbers to understand the massive impact of the pandemic on the emergency department. They suggest their data show that a fee-for-service model may be too vulnerable to withstand future similar shocks to the system. The pain of being asked to be on the front lines in the early and very scary stages of the pandemic, coupled with a reduction in pay and hours, was all too real for most of us. 
and I hope we can think and talk about solutions and systems that might be able to be put into place to protect us from unpredictable financial shocks. Abstract number 20, forecasting emergency department hourly occupancy using time series analysis is by Cheng et al. And it's in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I think it's a pretty important concept that, again, we don't see too much written about in the literature. We know that EDs experience wide fluctuations in ED patient volume on a day-to-day basis. Some of it's a little bit more predictable. You know, Mondays are busier than Sundays. But some Mondays are especially busy for no particularly good reason, and some Monday mornings are more busy, and some Monday afternoons are more busy than others, and it's really hard to predict that. There's a lot of variation there. Some EDs have a backup attending or some systems that they can invoke when it's particularly busy, but many don't. This leads to a lot of frustrations with staff, patients, providers, and administrators. The issue with the backup ED is that very often, by the time it's all backed up, it's like kind of too late, you know, certainly to call in a backup attending or something. They get in there a couple hours later. It's, you know, you walk into this clogged up mess, you know, that just doesn't work. And what we really need, or one thing that we really need, is better predictive capacity such that you could call up a backup attending several hours before the severe crowding event or intervene at the administrative hospital level several hours before the expected crush of patients. So that, you know, you could affect it and make it go away before it even happens. And look you, what you want to say something. Are you trying to tell me this is a minority report style pre-crime paper? <laughs> I'm trying to say it's predictive analytics. <laughs> it's pre-crime. It's pre-crime, yes. The third, well, yeah, the, what were they called? What was it called? The, the, oh, yeah. The, the yeah. three Pre-cogs. people. The, the precog. thing. Precog. Yeah. Agatha, Agatha was the, the name of the... I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> if you haven't seen this 20-year-old movie, which is one of the best sci-fi movies of all time, clearly. Uh, it's a classic. And yep. this sounds like we're finally seeing it entering the scientific realm. All right. Tell me more <laughs> about the emergency department pre-crime <laughs> unit. Yeah. So basically, these authors compare a newly developed predictive model for ED occupancy with older models. And they use data from the University of North Carolina from 2016 to model occupancy. I don't know why it was 2016. The variables included depended on the model, and there were several of them, I think like five or six models total, but generally included some patient-level factors, like you know the ages of patients in your emergency department, the gender, their chief complaint, along with contextual factors like the current ED occupancy, new arrivals and the hours leading up to this moment in time, and also sort of like the averages over time of Mondays at this time and Tuesdays at this time, et cetera. The output was the expected ED occupancy one to four hours into the future. So not a long time into the future. The study outcome was how far off the predictions were from what really happened. Okay, They tested four models that included different variables and determined that the one called the 24 Saramax outperformed the others in that the error margins were substantially lower than the other ones, basically. As presented, the results are not extremely meaningful, but the, I guess the main point is that this 24-hour Saramox model was about 50% better in terms of its error, its average error, than the other ones. The results clearly are much better for predicting sort of occupancy at one hour than they are for four hour, but this margin stays the same. The Saramax thing is always about 50% better than its competitor models. It's just that at four hours, the average error is a lot bigger than it is for one hour. 
It's not at all studied beyond the four-hour mark. A major advantage of this 24 Saramax model is that the software is not proprietary, okay, and it uses variables that are commonly available, such that it could actually be used without an enormous cost to emergency. They don't have to invest, you know, whatever, and license some expensive software and have special computers and all that kind of stuff. It should be doable with EHR data and open source software. We have no idea how this model compares to asking the charge nurse or the on-duty physician, like, what's going to happen in two hours? Yeah, here, or the docket know? triage, yeah, or right. the person that's your, you Somebody, know, your, your yeah. greeter, your router. Right, right exactly. We just have no idea if it, and of, of course, it should be able to be useful. It needs to be able to outperform that kind of thing. Although, it should be noted that there's like a subjective quality to like, you know, I've been a doc here. When it's like this, it's going to be a disaster eight hours from now. Your hospital administrators might not buy that. They're like, oh, this guy, he's an alarmist and he's asking us to call in additional nurses, all this kind of stuff, pay for additional doctors to come in. He's just an objective data, maybe more influential, even though it might not be more accurate. Well, I was thinking it might even be more influential kind of in your department level, right? Because if you're that doc working and you feel like it's getting busy, you might not want to just call someone on the phone and be like, hey, I'm going to act. I'm sorry, man. I just have my spider sense. It's going to get bad in a couple yeah. hours. Why don't you come on in? At least now you can go like, hey, Saruman or whatever says like it's going to get busy in two hours. It's out of my hands. This yeah. is the model. The red when, when it's over this, we just call in the we, person. We call it the red ball, the <laughs> pre-crime, yeah. the Saruman pre-crimes rolling down the thing. Yeah. You, I, hey, it's I wish I didn't have to call you. It's not my call. Saruman, Recog, Red Ball, call. (laughs) I think you've summarized it really well. So, you know, there's a lot that's not known. This is obviously not ready for prime time in any way. This is a single site. It's not externally validated. Still, I like this thread of operations research that could inform this stuff and could serve as objective measures, especially if it can outperform just like unstructured clinician or nurse judgment about what's happening so that we can, you know, lever our position and advocate for our patients, whether it's calling in a colleague or calling in additional hospital resources or having those hospital guys, you know, or telling them it's going to be bad. If you guys have some solutions, help us out instead of what they usually do, which is get mad at us because the wait times were long or whatever happens and then say, well, why didn't you guys do anything about this? We'll tell them ahead of time and say, you fix it right now. It's going to be a problem. A lot more to be known about this. Need to project out more than four hours. Need all sorts of stuff. But I like the thread of, of inquiry. I'd like it even better if it had a little red ball that came down. Editor's commentary. This is a single-site study demonstrating an improved prediction model for ED occupancy. The model is not validated in external settings, and it's not known whether it outperforms unstructured senior clinician predictions. Nonetheless, this offers some hope that real-time predictive analytics may be able to improve ED operations as this type of software matures. Hello, EMA. Here we are in February of 2022. I'm Jess Monis, and here with my partner in crime, Jenny Beck-Esme. How are you, Jenny? I am doing all right. You know, very much looking forward to February 2020. I hope that I hope that February 2020 is better than December 2021, 
where we're recording right now. <laughs> right. Or actually, it's funny because I was looking back at our recording from last February and we were commenting that we couldn't believe we'd been living with COVID for one oh year. Oh, God. Remember that? You know, <laughs> yeah. we were we were so excited that the vaccine was here. Yeah. It looked like blue skies were on the horizon. I got to say, I really don't think I ever could have predicted we would be in this state after having the vaccine for a year. And that was probably short-sighted of me. I'm not a public health person. I'm not an epidemiologist. So I'm certainly no expert in how this thing was going to play out from the beginning. I remember thinking at the beginning, no way this is ever going to go away until we have a vaccine. But once we have a vaccine, I think, you know, things are going to start looking up. Wah, wah. <laughs> it's like, wah, wah. <laughs> right, exactly. And now it's like move over Delta. Here comes Omicron, right? So right. Like, here, comes, here comes Omicron. And now every nurse in the United States has quit. So, <laughs> so we're in good shape, right? Yeah, it's so, good. you know, it's good. anyway, so, so we get our vaccines, right? We get our boosters, we wear mm -hmm. our masks, and we plod on. Yes, we do. So there we go, right? So I, I figured we might as well start this month off on a paper about COVID. You ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, paper number one, effective early treatment with fluvoxamine on risk of emergency care and hospitalization among patients with COVID-19, the together randomized platform clinical trial. So just under 1,500 unvaccinated COVID-positive patients who presented within seven days of symptom onset were randomized to either fluvoxamine, 100 milligrams twice daily for 10 days, or placebo. Patients had to have at least one high-risk feature, things like age over 50, hypertension, diabetes, the usual. The primary outcome was medical admission to a hospital setting due to COVID-19, which they defined, and get this, Jenny, as either observation in the ED for over six hours or referral for admission. For actual hospitalizations, you know, sleep in a bed upstairs, what you and I would consider a, an admission, it was the same. So while the authors claim that hospitalizations, and I have that in quotes, was 5% less with fluvoxamine, that was driven by the ED stays greater than six hours, which, let's be honest, given overcrowding, understaffing, and delays in labs and imaging, is just a typical Monday. <laughs> now, you may hear some big claims about a mortality benefit, but there really was none. The authors did some fancy footwork, isolating out the per-protocol patients to demonstrate some benefit, but with the intention to treat, which is what we care about, it did not pan out. Big picture here, this is not a COVID panacea. That is so disappointing and so exactly on par with what I told everybody to expect. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, we're not very good at treating viruses as a community. We haven't figured that out, so... I wasn't really expecting much. Okay, paper number two, a randomized trial of intravenous alteplase before endovascular treatment for stroke. In the semi-recent past, we have covered stroke trials showing endovascular therapy alone to be non-inferior to alteplase plus EVT for large vessel occlusions. But if you remember, these have been in Asian populations and therefore made us kind of question exactly how generalizable the results were going to be since that specific patient population has a higher proportion of their strokes being caused by intracranial atherosclerosis. Here, we have a study on a European population. They looked at about 550 patients across three European countries, and they compared EVT alone to EVT plus alteplase as both a superiority and a non-inferiority analysis. And they found that EVT alone is not superior and is not inferior to the combination therapy. But there did seem to be a slight trend 
though not significant, toward improved results with EVT plus alteplase, a little different than the previous studies. Ultimately, pretty similar results to previous studies. Listen back to the MRAP from June 2018 for the segment on the DAWN trial to dive a little bit deeper. All right, paper number three. PCARN algorithms for minor head trauma, risk stratification estimates from a prospective predict cohort study. Irradiating young brains is bad, and PCARN helps us figure out which kids don't need imaging. The authors sought to determine the rate of clinically important traumatic brain injuries for each risk group. This was a large study with about 15,000 patients. Kids with high-risk features like GCS less than 15, palpable skull fracture, or altered mental status had a 55 to 8.5% rate of clinically important TBI. So, if you're high-risk, you get scanned. The rate in very low-risk kids was zero, so these are the ones we spare. Let's focus on the older kids in the intermediate group for a moment. Intermediate elements include loss of consciousness, vomiting, severe headache, and severe mechanism of injury. For the kids with all four of these features, 25% had a clinically important TBI. Granted, that was an N of one out of four, but still. I don't think there's one among us that wouldn't scan a kid that had, was in like a rollover, who passed out, was vomiting, clutching their head, right? We'd all scan them. So the rate dropped down to 3% with three features and less than 1% if only one intermediate factor was present. So this is the gray zone where our clinical gestalt comes into play. The high risk and the very low risk group, that's a no-brainer. But um, <laughs> I like what you did there. I like what you did there. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> Paper number four. Bloody diarrhea and shiga toxin-producing E. coli hemolytic uremic syndrome in children. Data from the ItalKid HUS network. Shiga toxin-producing E. coli infections can cause bloody diarrhea and lead to HUS in kids. In northern Italy, a network was created with the goal of screening children who had a bloody diarrhea for this shiga toxin-producing E. coli so that they could help prevent HUS and hopefully prevent acute renal failure. Over 10 years, they screened nearly 5,000 kids with bloody diarrhea, and they found that 4.5% were shiga toxin positive, and of those, almost 16% developed HUS, which translates to just under 1% of all the patients screened. Now remember, we think that using antibiotics to treat this specific dysentery caused by this kind of E. coli increases the child's risk of developing HUS. So... Knowing that nearly 5% of the patients had this type of dysentery, it's a good reminder that we should probably be cautious before using antibiotics in these patients. Diarrhea and antibiotics got a recent deep dive on MRAP in June 2021. So listen back to that for a refresher. I like that. I like knowing that not doing something is okay. Yeah, so exactly. good return precautions seems reasonable. Yeah. Paper number five, effect of 12 milligram versus 6 milligram of dexamethasone on the number of days alive without life support in adults with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia, the COVID steroid 2 randomized trial. If you are hypoxic and get admitted, you get dex. Many of us are giving 6 milligrams based on prior data, but should we give more? Patients in this larger study were randomized to receive either 6 milligrams or 12 milligrams of dexamethasone IV for 10 days. There was no difference in days alive without life support or serious adverse reactions. While mortality was 5% less with the higher dose, this was not statistically significant. 
The study was slightly underpowered, and the authors note that just three fewer deaths in the 12 milligram group would have made the benefit significant. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. While this is still a negative study, I'm sure it will not be the last we hear about dex dosing. Paper six, ultrasound versus landmark guided medium-sized joint arthrocentesis. This is a small RCT comparing an ultrasound-guided approach versus a landmark-only approach for arthrocentesis of medium joints, and that specifically means elbows, wrists, and ankles. The procedures were performed by residents who were familiar with both techniques but weren't particularly skilled in them. They weren't trained in them for this study. They found a significantly better success rate, better first-pass success, and fewer attempts were used in the ultrasound group. There seems like there may have been some problems with the randomization and study design, which likely biased the results a bit toward the ultrasound group, but this is kind of keeping with what I would expect to be true. Ultrasound generally helps us find pockets of fluids or tubes filled with fluids and makes us better at attacking them with a needle. So next time you have to tap one of these joints, I would say consider using ultrasound to help. All right, well, let's stick with ultrasound for a second and do paper number seven. The erector spinae plane block for acute pain management in emergency department patients with rib fractures. So interestingly, we reviewed a paper on the ESP block exactly one year ago. A quick refresher. With the patient prone, place the ultrasound in the mid-interscapular region and slide it immediately until you hit the transverse process. Insert the needle superior to the probe, direct it caudally, and inject a large volume of anesthetic which should then dissect the erector spinae muscle off the process, spreading the agent throughout the plane. In this small pilot study, the block was performed in nine patients with rib fractures and pain not controlled by opioids alone. Pain scores dropped dramatically from about 9.9 to 3.5. Not too bad. We obviously need more safety data here, but as long as you don't give the patient a pneumo, it seems promising. Paper 8. Efficacy of Empiric Antibiotic Management of Septic Olecranombersitis Without Bursal Aspiration in Emergency Department Patients. I didn't realize this before reading this paper, but apparently there is pretty good data showing that many, many patients who have their septic bursa drained end up with a chronic draining wound. So authors here want to describe the outcomes for patients treated with empiric antibiotics for suspected septic olecranombersitis without aspiration. If we can get away without doing it, it's probably going to be better for the patient. This is a high-quality chart review. If the patient with olecranombersitis was discharged on antibiotics, they were considered to be a patient with suspected septic bursitis. Of these, they found that nearly 90% were treated successfully with antibiotics without needing any intervention. I can't say I've actually ever been tempted to aspirate an olecranon bursa in the past, but I'm glad I didn't, as it appears to be likely unnecessary. Yeah, I love this. This is like we can add this to the pile of studies that tell us like, don't do that thing. Don't do that. Don't waste your time. It's hurting people. It's an irritating thing to have to do. Just prescribe and go. You know, it's like, just be like, uh, uh, no, no, we're not going to do that. Nope, 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 nope. Paper number nine, dexamethasone versus prednisone in children hospitalized for acute asthma exacerbations. We have plenty of data supporting the use of dexamethasone in children presenting to the ED with asthma exacerbations that we anticipate will go home. This is great considering prednisolone tastes disgusting. 
I gave it to my kid once and he threw up all over the place. It was horrific. Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that. Anyway, that's outpatient stuff. This paper looked at the use of dexamethasone in kids we admit with asthma. The authors conclude that kids given dex after hospital arrival compared to prednisone or prednisolone had a five-hour shorter length of stay, but there are so many problems here. In addition to the usual retrospective observational issues, the kids in this PRED group appeared sicker. More of them got albuterol and magnesium prior to presentation, so it's not surprising that they had a longer length of stay. Sanjay questions the validity of the study and gets into more details about why, but my guess is that DEX is probably fine. Maybe not better, but probably fine. If you want a quick summary on current asthma guidelines, listen to the August 2021 MRAP Snack, where Eileen Claudius discusses the Global Initiative for Asthma Update. Paper 10, MRI Outcomes in Patients with Acute Onset Vertigo in the ED, a Prospective Study. Now, if you listen to the full segment on this paper, Mike explains that the reason he's even reviewing this paper is so that the final conclusions drawn by this paper don't mislead any of us when we don't actually read the paper and dig into it. It's a paper with some problems, we can say, and Mike goes into those in detail. But to cut to the chase, the paper claims that 32% of patients presenting with acute vertigo had a stroke on their MRI. A third of acute vertigo had a stroke on their MRI. (laughs) And that 10% of patients without clinical signs of a stroke had a stroke on their MRI. They don't describe what these signs are. And despite having a plan in which the patients would get an MRI, some people did not get an MRI because they either refused to have one or their symptoms resolved. So not everyone got an MRI. In reality, likely only the sicker patients got an MRI. Go listen to Mike describe this in more detail, but just know if you start to see this paper and this number thrown around, it is almost certainly a gross overestimate. Totally agree. Although I do believe that vertigo, it's hard to diagnose, right? 100%. Right? These strokes are hard to diagnose and our clinical skills fail us, right? Our diagnostic Mm -hmm. skills fail us. So I believe that there certainly is a risk of misstroke, no doubt. A third, Absolutely. Yeah. A third, third, is, a third no. seems just a wild overestimate. But I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we've reviewed papers on the HINTS exam where we're trying to use an exam to do this better. We're just lousy at it. They're really, really hard. So, you know, we have to be cautious, but I wouldn't get worried that, you know, really a third of your patients have this. I just don't believe it. Yeah. Paper 11. Return encounters in emergency department patients treated with phenobarbital versus benzodiazepines for alcohol withdrawal. For many of us, when we reach for phenobarbital and alcohol withdrawal, we admit the patient. But what about using it in patients we plan to discharge? This retrospective chart review looked at three-day return visits in patients sent out after being treated with phenobarbital, benzodiazepines, or a combination of them. Patients who receive phenobarbital either alone or in conjunction with benzos had fewer return visits, 25% with benzos, 17% with phenobarb, and 10% with a combination of the two. A couple caveats here. To compare apples to apples, the authors converted the medications to lorazepam equivalents. The groups that received phenobarbital got the equivalent of a more than four-fold larger dose. It's also worth noting that the half-life of phenobarbital is over 72 hours, 
a lot longer than the typical benzo used in the study. So it's not surprising that patients who got more medication that lasted longer stayed out of the ED more. Paper number 12, Effect of Pain Reprocessing Therapy versus Placebo and Usual Care for Patients with Chronic Back Pain, a Randomized Clinical Trial. So I gotta say, pain reprocessing therapy seems pretty cool. The basic idea is that our brains detect pain as a sign of tissue damage. So when we feel pain, we need to be worried, we need to avoid any activity that's going to worsen the pain, as this is going to worsen the tissue damage, and we need to seek treatment to improve the tissue damage and improve the pain. Unfortunately, this just goes amok in patients with chronic pain, which isn't actually due to ongoing tissue damage. This therapy tries to get the patient to see this pain as a false alarm. They're not actually having any damage. Patients here were randomized to receive either this kind of therapy, a placebo injection, or usual community care. They found that pain scores, mood, and disability scores were best in the therapy group, mid-range in the placebo group, and worst in the usual care group. And those results lasted for an entire year. Now, it's hard to know whether this specific type of therapy is the special sauce or if it just any intense therapy would do the trick. But either way, this is a non-pharmaceutical and non-surgical approach to chronic back pain that seems to have had significant success. Yeah, no pain, no gain, right? Is that (laughs) terrible? (laughs) All right, paper 13. Acute myocarditis following COVID-19 mRNA vaccination in adults aged 18 and older. There has been a lot of buzz about myocarditis and COVID vaccination. You may recall my rant from December. (laughs) Jenny's shaking her head. Yes, I I am shaking my head vigorously. (laughs) This research letter looked at almost two and a half million Kaiser patients who received the mRNA vaccine. There were only 15 cases of confirmed myocarditis for a rate of 0.0006%. Extraordinarily rare. All of these patients did well with supportive care, and none needed the ICU. Among the unvaccinated comparison group, 75 patients had myocarditis for a rate of 0.005, so 10 times more than the vaccinated cohort. Let's also remember that the rate of COVID-associated myocarditis is about 0.15%, so 250 times higher than with the vaccine, and COVID myocarditis is no joke. Those patients get sick. So the bottom line here is tell your friends and family to get their vaccines and not use myocarditis as an excuse. Get vaxxed. Get vaxxed. Get boosted. (laughs) Get vaxxed. Boosters for everybody. Paper 14, Association of Tramadol versus Codeine Prescription Dispensation with Mortality and Other Adverse Clinical Outcomes. People like to think of tramadol as a safer opioid. But in fact, it has some serotonergic properties that could give it side effects that are actually worse than other opioids. These authors wanted to see if that was the case. They chose to compare tramadol to codeine, which apparently is still a very popular medication in other parts of the world. They looked at 370,000 patients who had one of these two medications prescribed and followed them in their database to look at frequency of adverse events, including all-cause mortality. They found that all-cause mortality, cardiovascular events, falls, and fractures were more common in the tramadol group. And this was true across all groups of patients, so across things like age, gender, and even indication for prescription. 
And they found that the probability of ending up with a diagnosis of opioid dependence was actually worse in the tramadol group. So, tramadol certainly doesn't seem to be safer than at least this one classic opioid. If you're going to prescribe it, you should probably assume it's at least as dangerous as your typical opioids, if not potentially worse. You know, it's interesting because when there was the crackdown, right, on the narcotics and the Percocet and the Vicodin Mm -hmm. and the Norco, right, clinicians shifted towards tramadol, but it's not better. No, it's not And so this is why this paper is a good reminder. And patients think it's better too. Patients don't even necessarily classify it in their head as the same as these other opioids, and that's just definitely dangerous. Right. Paper 15, Trends in Management of Simple Febrile Seizures at U.S. Children's Hospitals. This paper discussed the changes that occurred in the evaluation and management of simple febrile seizures before and after the American Academy of Pediatrics published their guideline update in 2011. This update included a few key statements, such as recommending against routine CBCs and neuroimaging, as well as performing lumbar punctures only on children with signs and symptoms of meningitis. So what was the trend? When comparing 2005 to 2019, they found that the rate of LPs dropped from 11.6 to 0.6%. CBCs dropped from about 40 to 10%, and head CTs dropped from 10.6 to 1.6%. And guess what? There was no change in the delayed diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. So sometimes, less is more. That might just be the theme of today. Less is more except when it comes to vaccines. Right. And I feel like that's kind of channeling Jerry Hoffman, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's like, right, sometimes, sometimes less is more. Do no harm. Do no harm. Paper 16, Diltiazem versus Metoprolol for the Management of Atrial Fibrillation. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing DILT and Metoprolol. You know, that age-old question. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot that was included. They found three trials, including a total of less than 150 patients. All three trials showed that DILT was faster at lowering the heart rate and that DILT had a better chance of achieving normal heart rate than metoprolol. Systolic blood pressure was lowered by about 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury in both the metoprolol and the DILT groups. I was kind of trained in the DILT camp, and that's usually my agent of choice but there isn't actually overwhelming evidence to support that given these are really small trials. Head over to this month's MRAP for more on AFib. Paper 17, Empowering Patients, Simplifying Discharge Instructions. Discharge instructions can be confusing. Patients are bombarded with lots of info and sometimes it's hard to piece out what's important. The authors in this study aim to help by implementing a method to improve patient understanding of their discharge plan. They created a one-page simplified information sheet that patients were assisted in filling out. Patients wrote down their diagnosis, prescribed medications, follow-up plan, and reasons to return. Not surprisingly, this improved comprehension and patients liked it. Is it realistic for us to sit down and walk our patients through filling out this type of form for every visit? Not for most of us, but maybe there is someone in the ED who can. It certainly can't hurt. I love this. You know, at least for me, writing things down, pen on paper, is a really good way for me to actually learn them and remember them. So it makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, I don't know whose job this would be because certainly the nurses are too busy to spend their time with this. Most ERs, the doctors, probably too busy to spend their time with this. 
but it's something that's probably a little above the level of education of like a volunteer. So Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Paper 18, Assessment of Discordance Between Physicians and Family Members Regarding Prognosis in Patients with Severe Acute Brain Injury. It's obviously important for patients' family members to understand their prognosis, particularly when the patient has a severe brain injury and the family member is going to be making decisions for them based on this prognosis. Authors here looked at how differently patients' families estimate their loved one's prognosis when compared to the doctor. They asked the patient's surrogate decision-maker a few questions. How likely is it that your loved one is going to recover to be independent? And how likely would your treating doctor say your loved one's chance of recovering to independence is? That same day, they asked the treating doctor similar questions. What is the patient's chance of recovery to independence? And how would you rate how well the family understands this prognosis? If the family member rated the prognosis as higher than what they thought the doctor rated it, they called this optimistic belief bias. The patient knew what the doctor said, but they thought that they had a better chance. But if the family member's estimate matched what they thought the doctor's estimate was, and that was actually different from what the doctor said the prognosis was, they considered this misunderstanding or misinformation. It's a little bit complicated, but it's actually super cool. There was discordance between the family member's prognosis and the doctor's prognosis around 60% of the time. And in the vast majority of these, the family overestimated the prognosis. Not really surprising. Often this seemed to be due to their optimism, but almost half of the time, it seemed to actually be due to misunderstanding. We need to be aware of both the optimism bias and the potential for misunderstanding when counseling family members in these cases. Yeah, and I remember Aaron recently reviewed a paper that was looking at something similar, but looking at outcomes in comparison and found that physicians tend to have a more pessimistic view Mm, um, compared to actual outcomes. So it's just kind of interesting to see where that would align in terms of actual outcomes, physician's perspective, patient's perspective, I mean, patient's family's perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. All right, paper number 19, the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economics of United States emergency care. This is an observational study looking at 136 EDs from January of 2019 to September of 2020. We all remember the time when COVID first came on the scene and people took it seriously. No one wanted to come to the ED and visits dropped by about 40% in adults and 70% in kids. ED emissions rose by about a third, which makes sense because only the sick of the sick came in. Emergency physician clinical hours and compensation dropped by 15%, and even more so for APPs by about 27%. For the first time in a long time, many of us had to worry about a job. This was even scarier for new grads, some of which had job offers rescinded. To be asked to take on such huge risks and face the unknown, but also have to worry about job security, is just not right. I couldn't agree more. It was a devastating time to be counseling those residents. I'm in residency leadership. And to have them have just gone through this intense madness that was so terrifying, so unknown, and then to lose their job offers was just too much. Yeah. Paper 20, Forecasting Emergency Department Hourly Occupancy Using Time Series Analysis. Wouldn't it be nice if we could easily predict surges in our emergency departments 
before or at least as they were happening, this would mean that extra staff could get called in and the whole place could be wrangled before it gets out of control. This, of course, assumes that we live in a world in which there are extra staff or even just (laughs) enough staff. (laughs) And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're recording this in December 2021. And for many of us in the United States, if not most or all of us, having even enough staff is a pipe dream. But anyway, back to this paper. The authors compared predictive models for ED occupancy where the models are supposed to predict the occupancy one to four hours in the future. They compared four different models and found that one called Saramax was better than the others. It would be interesting to see how this model compared to charge nurse or physician predictions. You know, are we just as good as telling when it's going to get busy as this model? I like that people are working on this, though, because anything, absolutely anything, that could improve ED staffing and flow is a plus in my book. Right. And how does this compare when, like, the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with <laughs> right. Mars? Like, right. Like, when it's like, raining or when it's when not it's, raining. And, and the moon is full or whatever. Yeah, and whether the doctor on is a black cloud or a white cloud or a gray cloud. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, all right. Anyway, with that, we are ending our February EMA Ultra Summary. Go forth and have a happy Valentine's Day, everyone. And we will see you in March. It's it's time talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Welcome back to the February time to talk a little nerdy. This is Anand Swami Nathan here, as always, with my good friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, it is great to be back on. It is February. It's a lovely month, and I'm interested and excited to get into this with you. I'm interested too. And I noticed that in your introduction, you didn't mention that we were Valentine's at one point in time. Do you remember that romantic evening we spent on Valentine's Day a few years ago in New Jersey? I don't think I'll ever forget it, Ken. Uh, I got a call from you saying, hey, I'm uh, stranded in Newark Airport. You doing anything? And of course, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the calendar. I'm saying, yeah, Ken, it's Valentine's Day. I'm doing something, but how nice it was to have you and Barb join me, my wife, and some friends for a nice dinner out. It was absolutely fantastic. Not the Valentine's Day I expected, but the Valentine's Day I needed. And, you know, talk about turning a situation. We can't control what happens to us, but what we can control is our response to it. And so we were storm stayed, snowed in, stranded in Newark Airport. Uh, not the most romantic evening planned for uh, Valentine's Day. And so uh, who do I know in New Jersey? Swami reached out to you. Hey, let's have dinner. You were very gracious to include us in your group. And we had a fantastic evening. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I hope that someday you'll get stranded in New York airport again, and we'll get to do it again. Or you could always come up here any time of the year and get stranded in the airport and we could go out. Much more likely that I'll come up there and get stranded with your weather. So we're going to make it happen. But Ken, I'm sure that everybody out there doesn't want to hear the details of our Valentine's Day dinner together. And instead, they are here for a little bit of some nerdy talk. And we have a good topic for this, actually. Last August, there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Angiography After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Without ST Segment Elevation, widely referred to as the Tomahawk Study. This is a big study looking at the benefit of immediate versus delayed or no cath after ROSC without STEMI on the EKG. The article was covered by Mike and Sanjay in EMA. And just as a reminder, Ken, what was the bottom line of the study? 
So in the Tomahawk study, they found that there was no statistical superiority in all-cause in-hospital mortality at 30 days to take someone who'd had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they obtained return of spontaneous circulation, but there was no ST segment elevation on EKG immediately for angiography. That was their big bottom line. That was the key result. Right. So that rushing the patient off to cath immediately, regardless of the EKG findings, doesn't seem to be indicated based on this study. And you went really deep into this article on the SGEM. We will drop a link to that in the show notes. I also got to discuss this at length with Salim Razai on at Rebel EM. And when we were discussing it, when I was chatting with Salim about it, he had mentioned the idea of survivorship bias and how that might actually bias these results. And I'll be honest, Ken, when Salim said it, I kind of nodded along. So yeah, right, survivor bias. And then I realized I'm not sure I have a good grasp on the topic. And maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I assume to a certain degree, if I don't have a good grasp on the topic, then there are probably some other people out there who are doing the same thing I do. That you hear survivorship bias, you kind of nod along. And so instead of just nodding along, we are going to dive deep into the idea of survivorship bias. And it's time to put in the warning. Nerd alert, nerd alert, nerd alert. Yes, yes, we are going to get nerdy, but Ken, it's in the title. It's time to talk a little nerdy. We have no choice. We have to get a little bit nerdy, and that's what we're going to do on survivorship bias. So let's just start with a definition. What does that mean? What does survivor bias or survivorship bias mean? Well, it's another form of cognitive bias, like we've talked a couple of episodes last year, and survivorship bias is a subsection of selection bias or sampling error. It's when you only select the surviving members and do not look at those who did not survive. So rather than considering the entire cohort, you just focus down on that subgroup of patients who survived. Sometimes it's also referred to as the visible or selected patient compared to the invisible or those patients not selected to be analyzed. And of course, we're framing this in the medical context, but when I looked this up and I researched it a little bit, there's a big statistical basis for this in the non-medical world. So can you give us a non-medical example? Sure. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Look at the tech world. The most successful tech company CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, they both had this big idea. They dropped out of school and became wildly successful. But does that really mean we should be encouraging young people to drop out of school? And just in case you're wondering, the answer to that question is no, (laughs) right? This is survivorship bias by ignoring how many people all were ignored that dropped out of school with a great idea and got nowhere, didn't start a highly successful tech company. They failed in their dream. And so that is where uh, an example of survival ship bias can come from a non-medical example. I love that example too, Ken, because you know when I graduated from college, it was when the tech bubble was exploding. And I had lots of friends who I graduated with who took jobs with these new tech companies, these startups. And within two years, I would say 95% of the ones that I had some knowledge of through friends had already collapsed. And so we only see that, that small percentage that, that made it, that are still alive and, and going. And we have to go back to that early 2000 time and kind of remember there were thousands, if not more, of these companies that failed. And we have to remember the initial end instead of just looking at 
the end that still is around right now. I remember when we talked about biases that you said that a bias is anything that systematically moves us away from the truth. How does survivorship bias do that? Well, if we just focus on the attributes of the survivors rather than the entire cohort, we get a really distorted picture, and this can lead us away from the quote-unquote truth. When I was looking this up and I was researching it for our recording, I ran into an example that I thought really kind of explained it well for me. Let's say you have a hypothetical situation where a plane crashes. There are 200 people on that plane, and there are 50 survivors. I interview the survivors and write it up stating that out of 50 people interviewed, there was a 0% mortality rate resulting from the plane crash. I can easily conclude that plane crashes have a 0% mortality rate based on the 50 people I talked to. But obviously that number is extremely biased because I'm ignoring the 150 people who died. I'm not discussing that data. I'm not taking it into account. Exactly. And since you gave a hypothetical aviation example, I'm going to actually give you a real example from the aviation world. There was an American statistician, Abraham Wald, working at the Statistical Research Group at Columbia University during World War II. And the U.S. military took a look at the bomber aircrafts that successfully returned from their bombing missions and looked at where all the bullet holes were, where was all the damage on the fuselage. And they made a recommendation that we should increase the armor where all the bullet holes were on the plane. And Wald said, whoa, wait a minute. I think you should do exactly the opposite. He pointed out that they were ignoring all the planes that didn't survive and come back. And so you should really reinforce all the areas on the plane that weren't damaged. Because he hypothesized that planes were more vulnerable in those locations as if they were hit there, they did not return from their bombing mission. That is a really great example. And people talk about this all the time. If you're on social media, you will see a reference to Wald and, and his work very often. And, and I'm not sure that I completely understood that until now, until looking at this from the survivorship bias perspective. Can you give us an example of where this comes into play in an actual research, medical research study? Sure. There were some studies done on infective endocarditis that demonstrated an association between surgery and reduced mortality. But they did not consider that those who survived their illness long enough were more likely to receive the treatment, i.e. surgery, than those patients who didn't survive. And so this can give you the false impression that surgery improves mortality. Right, so these patients had proved that they were survivors, that they were going to do better, and now you gave them some treatment, but the treatment may have had nothing to do with it. And where you see this, Ken, often is that you compare the survival rate after this surgery for infective endocarditis to historical controls, where they didn't get surgery, and you compare their overall mortality of those diagnosed with infective endocarditis, but again, not taking into account those that died before surgery. So it's really, it's not even apples and oranges that you're comparing, Ken. It's like celery and hamburgers. I mean, it is two things that are totally different that we're making a comparison. And of course, this is why we have to be alerted to it. We have to be aware of this bias and how it comes into play. And let's take this back now to the Tomahawk study where we started. How does survivorship bias come into play in this study? Well, in the Tomahawk study, patients were excluded from the trial if they had severe hemodynamic or electrical instability, requiring them to immediately take the patient for coronary angiography or intervention. In other words, delay is clinically not acceptable. 
Or they also excluded patients who had life-threatening arrhythmias, possibly caused by acute myocardial ischemia and cardiogenic shock, and they defined that both clinically and with some hemodynamic criteria. Now, after these and some other exclusions, patients could only then be randomized into the immediate catheterization group or the delayed catheterization group. And this selects out patients who are well enough to participate in the trial. Those included in the trial were more likely to survive to get to that cath lab, either immediately, and the median time was three hours in that group, or in a delayed fashion. I think about 60% were actually cathed in the delayed group, and they had a median time of 47 hours. This means that both groups included in the study survived a trial of life. And that could have introduced some survival bias into the trial itself, and we should consider that when critically appraising this publication. This is really important, too, when you're comparing these two groups and you're trying to find that the delayed cath is non-inferior to immediate cath. And if you've already selected out a group that is going to do relatively well, it's easier to prove non-inferiority. We've talked about this before with non-inferiority studies. And this is why, again, you really have to understand all of these little pieces and, and how they interact with each other. Again, the big question we have to ask about this then is, does this understanding of survivorship bias change our interpretation of the results? Or maybe I should ask it in terms of how does this change our interpretation of the results? Well, it doesn't change my interpretation of the results. To answer the second question, though, does it change the way we look at the results? My answer to that would be the EBM answer. It all depends. Were you already mindful of the inclusion and exclusion criteria for this trial? We need to be careful not to overinterpret the results and also consider indication creep. This study clearly does not support the claim that taking patients immediately for catheterization in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients who you get ROSC, who don't have ST elevations, is superior strategy to a delayed strategy. And remember, of course, the burden of proof is on those making the claim, which is yet to be demonstrated. So until there is high-quality evidence to support the claim that an immediate catheterization strategy in this select group of patients results in a patient-oriented outcome, we should just accept the null hypothesis of no superiority. Ken, let's bring this kind of full circle and try to give the audience, and myself included, some tips that we can look for in a study to be alerted that survivorship bias might be changing the quote-unquote truth or changing the way that the evidence is being communicated to us. I think it all goes back to knowledge translation. And there is that leaky pipe model of knowledge translation saying that it can take over 10 years for high-quality clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. And the first leak in that leaky pipe model, is awareness. So if you're not aware that survivorship bias can push you away from the quote-unquote truth when reading a study, then you're not going to be aware of it. So you need to be aware and have your guard up to remember that survivorship bias can come into play. And just knowing what it is and how it can impact a study is just a great starting point. And then from there, you consider this type of selection bias or sampling error when you're actually evaluating the publication. So I think the biggest take-home point from this is, hey, do you know what survivorship bias is? 
and be aware of it and think about it when you're reading a paper. Fantastic. Ken, I think this is great. I think this really gives us a good idea of what survivorship bias means, how it affects the studies that we look at. And you have some great additional reading in the show notes that we're going to share with everybody. My favorite of these is an article in Nature talking about the survivorship bias of professionals. And this is a little bit outside of the medical realm. You know, it's not really what we're doing at the bedside, but it's a great example that we can look at to really understand it and deeply understand this methodologic concept that we have to know while we're appraising the literature. So fantastic discussion, Ken. As always, I love getting nerdy with you on these topics, and I can't wait to dive into this next time in March. Happy Valentine's Day. And stay nerdy. Look at us, back in action. Just like we Feels good. Feels like, good. Like we didn't even miss a bit. You know, I mean, the month off felt nice. Don't oh, yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. Feels nice to be back. It does feel good to be back. It's, just, um, it's, it's feeling comfortable now. It's nice to hear your voices out there in the EM sphere. Get the mail back. You know, we'll be getting some mail from the articles that I did and not the ones that, you know, Whitney did. You know, come on now, guys. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. It feels nice to be back. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I hope you all had a happy new year because, you know, by the time you're, you're listening to this, you're on to February, as we yeah, said. And you're about to have a happy Valentine's Day. And, and you're about to have a happy Valentine's Day. If anybody year. out there wants Rhea to make you personalized Valentine's Day, I bet she would do it. Well, you better hurry because if they're listening to this on Two, two, twenty, twenty-two. You only got twelve days. You know so what? So you need to send no, those no. comments in immediately. Your name. Do you want the yeah. heart to say "Be kind"? No, 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 no. Or, that's odd, dude. That's not how Raya works. You don't get to say Raya. Uh, dis- how, what's your favorite that's color? True. That's right? True. Raya will tell you what it is, and she doesn't. She doesn't miss a beat. Yeah. Right? She'll say Uncle Mike red. That's what she always said. Like. Is it true? Is it? It's never true. worn red around her, but it's it's true to her, it's true. right? And so it's, it'd it's, be the same thing honestly, with a Valentine's Day card. It's easier if to I just, said, "Oh, doctor, you know what's his name? So and so wants Valentine's card." She'd be like, "This is the shark one. Here yeah. it is. Take yeah. it." You actually don't get to choose. That'd be an insult to her artistic integrity. It's actually easier to change your favorite color or preferred Valentine's card that's right. than to try to train Rhea to yeah because she won't that's a that's an argument you will lose because i have often said things like you know i'd be like yeah oh uncle mike's red color red i don't think it's red girl i know i've never seen him wear red i've known him for over 20 years Uh, i know he's a fan of ucla football it might be blue i'm on the team you know you could go through like a 10 minute explanation at the end she'll say uncle mike's favorite color is red (laughs) so take the card you get if you want one She'll pick the right card for you. Right and it, 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 and you'll find out what yeah, you want. That's exact. That's how you know what your favorite card is. <laughs> All right. Well, with that note, I'm hoping that Omicron was a false alarm and that you're all out there healthy and happy, but more importantly, that you're staying classy. Boom.